Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor, and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. Welcome to Sex and Science Hour. This is a very special episode because we have a floating disembodied voice joining us that you might find familiar. And uh, it's Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey, Andreas, welcome to Sex and Science Hour. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Brian. Really, really happy to be joining you. I've been a fan for a while of this show. And uh, what do they say? Long time listener, first time caller? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I got an email from you, like, I think it was on New Year's Eve or something saying, I really like your show. Can I come on? And I said, yes. <laughs> so here you are. This is the first yes. time I've had the chance to actually do a podcast with Andreas. So oh, this that's is exciting right. for me. You get to do it every, uh, every well, whenever. Pretty much every record. week. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Andreas, the golden stallion is going to be riding you hard tonight. Whoa. So. <laughs> 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 so we got a, a bunch of really awesome articles that I picked out, especially for you, Andreas, that have oh, thank you. sort of like technological topics. Well, I guess we could sort of introduce you. I mean, you really need no introduction, but in case any of our listeners are not familiar with you, you and I work together on the podcast, Let's Talk Bitcoin, which we've been doing for almost four years together at this point. And mm. uh, you are also a tech expert. You know, you've been working in technology for a long time. You're, most recently, you've gotten into Bitcoin and blockchain technology, hence the Let's Talk Bitcoin connection. But um, you're a speaker and you've run several tech companies and just an all-around cool guy in the technophile. But today you told me that you don't want to talk about Bitcoin. You don't maybe not want to talk about technology so much. You just want to talk about sex and science. And I was like, OK, that sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think of myself as a scientist. Um, right computer on. science is probably mostly associated with engineering, and a lot of the, quote, real scientists sometimes frown down upon computer scientists as not real scientists. But we do some math, um, and I, I really, really enjoy physics. So I consider myself a scientist, and um, I have also had sex. So I think I've had sex for both. <laughs> Hey, yes, parts you're, of your show. You're hired, Andreas. You're qualified to be on the show. <laughs> and a, and the computer scientist qualifies as a nerd. So really, that's the other qualification you had to meet. We didn't tell oh, you fantastic. about that one. It was kind of an unwritten rule, but you, you met that one. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> cool. So, um, so actually, before we start, where can people find you online if they want to know more about what you do? Um, I probably use Twitter the most. I also have a YouTube channel where I do a lot of my Bitcoin talks. And uh, yeah, those are the, probably the two best places to find me. Very, very cool. 
Okay, so the first article I have for you, which you will probably appreciate as someone who has been, I guess, associated with the world of Silicon Valley and also definitely in the tech world. This is called How Men Are Getting Off on Women Ruining Their Lives Online. We speak to Mistress Harley, the world's first techno dom and a master of long distance data domination. <laughs> So here's the article. Think of a dominatrix, and the first image the brain conjures up is one of whips, latex, and underground dungeons. Now, thanks to our gluttonous devouring of internet porn, dating sites, and dick pics, well, I don't know about them, but I'm not gluttonously devouring any dick pics. (laughs) Usually if I receive them, I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) Most of our sex lives are acted out in online realms. It only seems fitting then that traditional methods of domination are getting an update too. Mistress Harley is the world's first and only, quote, techno-dom, and uses her finely tech skills to sell a very modern brand of kink, data domination. With her reputation for highly competent and pertinent or permanent domination, she's now training other female tech experts to follow in her lead. Harley, once from San Francisco, was managing 20 guys a day in her role as a tech project manager. It was webcamming as a side hustle. It was while webcamming as a side hustle that her business idea was born. Quote, I noticed this demand among men who are looking for women to degrade, humiliate, and abuse them in a variety of ways, she tells me. One of the really popular fetishes in Europe was blackmail. In the course of examining how to blackmail people, I realized that there are a bunch of softwares that allow you to go onto people's computers. Clients also told me that they wanted more realistic control, so I looked into how to control people in a more permanent way, longer term. Taking administrative control of her clients' devices, she started installing parental controls, spyware, and basically anything she could think of to do with their computer. It became evident that no one else was doing this, she said, as you need to have a lot of technical skill. I use multiple operating systems, and I know how to get around people's computer setup. Soon she'd gained a reputation as one of the only doms who could do this highly skilled work. She even developed her own app so she could control her clients' phones. When a client approaches her and says she they want her to control them, she charges a minimum of $65 and installs desktop sharing software on their computer or laptop. Having 20 regular clients means she can make up to $5,000 a day. I'll go onto their computer, go into their user preferences, make myself admin and put child controls on, she explains. I can log in whenever I want. I'll give them time restrictions, say they can't use their computer after 8 p.m. or anything they want to do online is negotiable and they'll have to pay me. <laughs> She'll also rifle through her client's browser history and see what kinky stuff they like to look at and then stop them from watching it. So I'm going to stop the article here. Yeah, yeah. wait a second. So so she's taking over their computers. Yeah, essentially and- she's doing everything that like a hacker with malware would do, like non-consensually. And she's doing it, but for her, it's consensual, I guess, with the guys. Okay. And they're so, paying her to do it. So she's not really doing anything like sexual, like. Well, I I mean, I can no, see getting off on like she a says power she's keeping her clothes on. She's not doing anything overtly sexual. It's just that some <laughs> freaks get turned on by this stuff. And I'm sorry, Whoa. I shouldn't say freaks They're That's kink shaming. But some people get really turned on by this stuff. And she's taking advantage of that. Yes, Andreas. Well, power games are the ultimate sex game, right? So I, yes. I can see how this would work. I, I like the idea of like a completely new category of hacker. So you have black hats. And black hats are malicious and non-consensual. Then you have white hats. Uh, and they usually do this work for corporates. And she's a pink hat. Uh, so <laughs> I love it. She's, pink hat. I thought you were so going to say like black 
black leather boots or something. <laughs> yeah, but she's like, it's consensual, but it's for a kinky purpose. And, but it, it's terrifying. I mean, to me, like the idea, I, I don't know, maybe because I'm in security and kind of like the, the security of my personal devices is absolutely sacrosanct. And I, I spend a great deal of my time making, making damn sure that my devices are secure. The idea of giving someone else control over them is absolutely terrifying. Now, not ter- not terrifying, titillating, just terrifying, <laughs> right? So yeah, me too. I find it horrifying. I- I'm totally with you. I could. I don't think I would ever be able to get turned on by this, but apparently some people do. And to me, it would just feel like such a huge invasion and violation. And I guess that's what's sexy about it for some people. And I guess you could say at least she's occupying her time doing this with people who are consenting to it and even paying her for the privilege. So she's not going out and being actually a black hat hacker. She's being a pink hat. But um, (laughs) I I just uh, just think it's really fascinating. So are you... um, well, I don't want to ask you two personal questions, Andreas, but how oh, go ahead. how knowledgeable are you about kink? Are you experienced with it at all? Um, do you know anybody or have you ever had any experiences that are similar to this? I'm not really in the power play category. I wouldn't say I've... No, I haven't really... I mean, you know, other than the teenage version of that, which is... Um, you know, tying someone up with a scarf or being tied up with a <laughs> scarf and tickling them with a feather, kind of the, the very, very basic. But yeah. no, I'm not, not into power games, no. Um, yeah, us either. We're pretty vanilla with respect to kink, but, you know, we've researched it as part of our show and stuff like that. Yeah, research, yeah. <laughs> um, just for research purposes only, of mm-hmm. course, because you have to be a scientist. But <laughs> yeah, in our personal lives, I mean, this does not, this doesn't really appeal to me as a turn on. She actually has one client, it says later in this article, who says that they got castrated because she told him to. And well, actually, I think he said, it was his, and this I found fascinating. Mm. It was, it was his really strong desire. And he said something that I found fascinating. He said, I externalize responsibility for my feminization. Mm. Um, so what he did is he allowed himself to take that final step by really shifting that responsibility to the other side of the power spectrum. I, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing that's referred to as force femme, right? Like what they, mm. men want, women to force them to do feminine stuff or you know be sissies or whatever and i've heard that a lot in on online internet discussions of you know (laughs) like suggesting that uh somebody force femme this person who's making these like alt-right arguments in a discussion (laughs) or something but uh and go ahead and um i just want to point out that i was i shared this article online uh, or somebody i know shared it in a, a discussion board that i was on and they said they didn't think the person actually got castrated, like as in literally like remove their penis. Like they thought it was just like a chast wearing a chastity device oh, that prevents you from getting no a access. boner or something or like a chastity oh. belt or something like that. So I prefer to think well, of it, it that way. Be, it, it, it might also be chemical kind of chemical reversible castration right. that I've, I've heard some people are interested in. So that mm-hmm. would be, um, Taking testosterone blockers or estrogen in order or antidepressants, to ex- yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. Now, Mistress Harley describes herself as a feminist. She says she's a neo-feminist. She said, I don't think there's anything more powerful than a man giving me money for nothing. Well, amen, sister. <laughs> In a world where women often get paid less than men and where they're subject to men's political desires when it comes to their bodies, there's nothing more empowering than exploiting men the way they have us for centuries. Uh, well, I have no argument. <laughs> I'm curious as to whether she's ever had any female clients. Yeah, I, you know, um, as I understand it, pro-doms almost never get female clients. And the reasons for that are varied. Um, there's, I've, I've read studies to an extent that suggest that it's more common for men to basically be kinky. What they refer to in the psychological world as paraphilias, which is basically just kinks. And um, also, women are less likely to hire sex workers in general. So I think that contributes to it. Actually, I <laughs> I, uh, I narrated an erotic story about a, uh, a female dom who got a female client, and she was, like, so surprised because she had never had a female <laughs> client before. <laughs> and so I think it's a thing where it's it's very it, – pretty much all of her, her clients are men. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I, I got to agree with this this whole story, with the the, the – digital dom here i, I mean I, i'm with andreas i'm just too much of a security guy to you know to really oh, like horrifying, yeah. yeah but what would be hot what would be hot to me is if like you could pay her for a bit of a contest you know to where it's like okay can you really crack what i have going on i mean you don't have to do that with a dom or you know whatever there's whole companies you can hire to do that but that could get exciting where, <laughs> where if you kind of where you could d dominate her <laughs> you yeah, could like, dom I, the dom <laughs> That's an interesting kind of twist on on role playing, which is where you date a hacker and your relationship is based around a constant competition to compromise each other's machine. So it's, it's, it's pawning as role playing, right? So you know, I wasn't turned on by be this cool. before, but now it sounds kind of fun, actually. Doesn't that sound <laughs> it good, right? sounds like a fun game. Yeah, it'd be like uh, was it movie hackers, right? Crash override. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, burn. <acid> burn. <laughs> Alright, stay tuned, there's more coming up. This is Sex and Science Hour. Hey everybody, Andreas and I do a show together, another show. It's called Let's Talk Bitcoin and you can find it on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network at, surprise, surprise, letstalkbitcoin.com. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great show. Our other co-host is Adam Levine and the three of us have a really nice balance and um, back and forth on topics about Bitcoin, culture, society, philosophy of money and all kinds of things like that. And uh, yeah, don't miss it. Awesome. And of course, Brian, who you heard on this show, has his own technology podcast called Sovereign Tech, S-O-V-R-Y-N tech.com if you want to hear that. But I'll tell you, I never miss Let's Talk Bitcoin. We're back here on Sex and Science Hour. All right, Andreas. So we got another article for you, the worst tech predictions of the past 100 years. And I knew you would like this because you've mm -hmm. actually, I had heard about some of these things, the very same things in this article from you. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you've clearly done some research on this. So this is from Medium here by uh, Ilya Pestov. He says, at the beginning of each year, there's a tradition to make predictions for the future. Is blockchain a major technology or is it just a buzzword? Andreas, is it a major technology or is it just a buzzword? <laughs> oh, it's both. Bitcoin's blockchain is a major technology and most of the rest are just buzzwords. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> it's both. Good answer. <laughs> Bots versus apps. Who will win, etc. 
The technology oh, yeah. industry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the technology industry and its customers it serves have proven to be extraordinary, s- extraordinarily slippery during the past hundred years. However, they were dreamers, and many of those that made serious forecasts of market error, technology development, and adoption rates, the predictions that stick in the mind are those that demonstrate spectacular misjudgment, misunderstanding, overly optimistic hyperbole, self-delusion, or wishful thinking. At the time they're made, predictions that are grossly mistaken are rarely recognized as gaffes of historical proportions. To remedy that, I've listed some of the better predictions that demonstrated that even the giants who bestride the technology world like Colossi or robber barons don't always know exactly what they're talking about. (laughs) So then it goes into a list. In 1876, William Orton, who was the president of Western Union, said, This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. That was the guy who became the president, who was the president of Western Union. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what was Western Union in 1876? Yeah, telegraph. 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 Oh, okay, of course. So what do you think were the shortcomings of the telephone? Like that it needed the switchboard, the operators? Well, it was, ter- I mean, it's, um, it's one of the topics I've talked about, which is called infrastructure inversion. But if you mm-hmm. think about it at the time, the reason they used telegraph is because over long distances with um, low quality wires and um, difficulty in maintaining these wires, the most bandwidth you could get through was a series of clicks that were barely discernible on the other end. Um, so if you can imagine trying to get a phone call, uh, actual human voice it has a lot more information. It carries a lot more information and it's a lot harder to discern human voice, even if some of that information is degraded. Um, mm. So those early phone calls were terrible quality, scratchy, missing bass and uh, treble frequencies. So, you know, you would have only the mid-range terribly distorted with cracks, hisses and pops in the background. And <laughs> what what they did is they misunderstood that as the forever future of that technology. And of course, there is no comparison because... Uh, Telegraph is suited towards that low bandwidth use and would work a hell of a lot better. You could sound eloquent with a telegram and you sounded horrible on the telephone. So, yeah, it, can, it makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. So they just weren't using their imagination basically to see where it could go. Well, you know, but that can go both ways because also yes. the president at the time said, I mean, he made an absolutely wild just ridiculous prediction. He said there would be a telephone and he could see in the future that there would be a telephone in every town. Yes. <gasps> now now that's town. crazy. <laughs> in every town. It's like, where are the telephones now? They're in every pocket. <laughs> you right. know? So, I mean, so that even even the positive predictions can always be wildly off. But yet, oh. even though we have the, the technology to easily have full quality voice and good microphones on every telephone device, we still have this tinny, like, eight kilobit, uh, eight kilohertz sound. Right. Why is that? The, what's the what's the bottleneck there, Andreas? Do you know? Well, actually, I am. I don't have that sound because I don't use telephones anymore. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I think a lot, a lot of us use various other voice over internet communications devices that give us, you know, high definition positional audio. So I, I don't have that problem. I mean, considering how we're talking right now, it certainly doesn't seem to be a problem. Yeah, right on. Of miles. Problem but, solved. Yeah, like halfway yeah. across the planet. <laughs> You're in a secret fortress, but it's it's far away enough that it's pretty amazing that we're talking with such low latency. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, so here's the next quote from Sir William Priest, chief engineer of the British Post Office, 1876 also. 
Americans have no need of the telephone, but... Oh, sorry. The Americans have need of the telephone, but we do not. We have plenty of messenger boys. (laughs) (laughs) I think he likes those messenger boys a little too much, huh? (laughs) Uh, In the 1870s in the post office in England? Yep. I think that's a fair bet. 1889. This is Thomas Edison who said this now. Fooling around with alternating current, AC, is just a waste of time. Nobody will use it, ever. Thomas Edison said that. Mm-hmm. Well, he was in the famous battle against, um, uh, wasn't he in the famous battle against Tesla yes. over ACDC? And they ended up like, like he electrocuted an elephant to demonstrate the dangers of AC, which is a barbaric thing to do. Mm. And uh, in the end lost because Tesla's AC was superior. Yeah, I guess he was trying to, take out his competition and this next quote is is also relates to that too this is from 1903 the horse is here to stay but the automobile is only a novelty a fad and this was said by the president of the michigan savings bank advising henry ford's lawyer horace rackham not to invest in the ford motor company so he was trying to get henry ford's motor or lawyer not to invest in ford <laughs> by mm-hmm. saying that cars were just a fad <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So much of this is really like you can just tell you can read between the lines so easily that it's marketing like this. It's all just marketing ploys. Yeah. We're like, oh, yeah, we're going to trash your technology just because we're worried it's going to upend ours. Uh, and I mean, you know, honestly, I think a lot of these that technologies that are being trashed, really, the only reason that they could continue on, you know, 100 years later is because there was such a crazy regulatory system uh, back then. It was still bad enough, but it, it wasn't as bad, say, uh, as today. So, it- And, you know, the negative PR campaigns, like they didn't work in these situations. These technologies rose, even though they, they were being talked about badly by some people. But it, it did work in some cases. Like they got people to believe uh, the Dow Chemical Company and Henry Anslinger and all those prohibitionists. They got people to believe that marijuana was the demon weed and that it was making people <laughs> dance and do all kinds of sexy things and that it was so dangerous. Oh, how terrible. <laughs> and people still believe it, <laughs> even though it's actually probably a lot safer than alcohol in many cases. Sure. So, uh, yeah, actually, Andreas, you know, I remember at one of your talks, um, that I caught, you, you had a great story about like kind of the fear of the automobile. Uh, yep. do, do you, you remember the details on that? It was something like, wouldn't they lay out signs or something to, to like warn people, Hey, an automobile's coming or something. What, what was, what was that all about? Well, this was a talk I actually delivered at Ford, um, <laughs> in, in Detroit, uh, about Bitcoin at, um, one of the big tech exhibitions that was happening at the Ford plant. Um, and it was in the, in, the um, uh, movie theater inside the Ford plant that had, um, uh, exhibitions about the automobile. And I was struck by how the movie itself was whitewashing history, how they presented it as a done deal and everybody embraced the automobile. And that's not at all how it happened. In fact, the history of innovation is that it was, it was demonized consistently by the media. So the, the, the pertinent story is that in, uh, I think 1896, if I remember correctly, the, uh, British passed a law called the, the, um, I think it was called the Transportation Act or something like that, but it's it's known now as the Red Flag Act. Um, and it required that every um, automotive carriage was operated by an engineer, an operator, and a conductor 
and <laughs> that uh, in addition, if it was uh, more than I think 15 feet long or something like that, uh, or exceeded a certain speed, that it must be preceded by a runner waving a red flag um, by a hundred yards ahead. A, a runner, right? So now you've limited the thing to the speed of a human runner, uh, so 15 miles an hour. And they have to wave the flag eff effectively to warn uh, pedestrians that an infernal doom machine is about to kill them. Uh, <laughs> With the poop bags flapping in the wind behind it, right? Because didn't it, wasn't it also a regulation they had to have poop bags for the horses, even though it had no horse? Well, there's a law in London right now that requires still um, carriages to carry hay and poop bags, and this applies to black taxis. Uh, nobody, of course, follows the law, but it's still in the books, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, what was that story, Brian, about... Um, the electric it, car? No, it, it, like it used to be women that would drive cars, and no. they would... Well, that was the electric car. The electric car. car. The electric car, the reason, or the, the theory goes is that the electric car has been, or was killed off, not because the technology wasn't viable, you know, 70 years ago or 80 years ago, whatever, but because they were seen as being something for women to drive. And so it wasn't manly enough to really do good sales. That was kind of the idea. Right. It was like uh, a thing that women would drive to the grocery store to go shopping or to the market, or I guess there was no real grocery. Yeah. Store, like but... it, it wasn't manly enough that, that, you know, the car didn't like make a sound or that, you know, you didn't have to really like fix about a lot of varying parts. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of speculation on some of it, but I would not be surprised whatsoever uh, mm. that, yeah, that would that would put an end to the electric car along other things. Mm, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> so here's another one. The wireless music box has no imaginable commercial value. Who would pay for a message sent to no one in particular? And this is about the radio, <laughs> the wireless <laughs> music box. <laughs> and it's um it's associates of David Sarnoff responding to uh, a call to invest in radio. That's another <laughs> it's another investment one. That was from nineteen twenty one. And uh, how about TV, 1926? While theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially, it's an impossibility. That was said by Lee DeForest, the, quote, father of radio and a pioneer in the development of sound on film recording used for motion pictures. He had over 180 patents. <laughs> so there you go. There's a conflict of interest, right? Well, I'll tell you, and I'd actually like to hear Andreas's thoughts on, on this, too. I mean, like the, so much of that like especially about radio and TV was exactly what was said about the internet until, yep. you know, Yahoo kind of cracked the Yahoo and uh, like hotmail, you know, finally cracked the nut that said, okay, this is how we can uh, advertise on there or whichever. Uh, right. So, I mean, th this, this kind of language is, is, is so commonplace for pretty much any new technology. I mean, wh what do you say, Andres? Yeah. I, th there's two things that strike me in all of these predictions. If you look historically, this is the real history of innovation. And the two things that strike me is the one the people who are most invested in the status quo, most uh, well-educated, most well-immersed in the status quo, who understand the current technology the most, are the least able to imagine the future. Um, they're in a cognitive straitjacket. They, uh, you know, the radio guy can't imagine TV. The horse. Uh, and buggy manufacturer can't imagine the automobile because they understand the current industry so well. And they have taken uh, many of the, um, let's say, optim optimizations or current solutions as doctrine, as because this is the best way we know to do something now, 
this must be the only way that it can be done. You know, that mm. cognitive leap becomes a straitjacket. And then they, there's that saying about trying to get someone to understand something when their livelihood depends on them not understanding it, right? <laughs> right. And so you could apply that to phone companies dealing with the internet, and, and now you can apply it to economists and bankers dealing with Bitcoin. But it's the same thing. The other thing that I think is very obvious from this is that anybody speaking about future or futuristic technologies should never, ever use the word never. <laughs> like, you, That's you a should, good one. You shouldn't go to the absolutes of impossibility. You can say... I think it is unlikely it will succeed, or I think it's unlikely it will succeed in its current form. You know, if you're going to make bold predictions, qualify them a tiny bit. If you say this will never work, um, you are guaranteeing yourself a position in in the history of ludicrous quotes. Because um, <laughs> right, as, unless you want to end up I, in one of these articles, then don't say that. Yes, and I I think it was Isaac Asimov who said. Um, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, or maybe it was Carl Sagan. I'm, I uh, can't Arthur remember C. Clarke. Arthur yeah. C. Clarke. Okay, one of the three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the pantheon. <laughs> um, yes, so, so of course, if you, if you look at something that's going to be advanced technology, and it looks like magic, you can claim it's impossibility, and you will be proven wrong. Um, science is about making the impossible possible, and so just never say never. That's right. Science is about making the impossible possible. I really like that. That's yeah, why absolutely. we do Sex and Science Hour. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so here's one from 1959, skipping ahead a little bit. The world potential market for copying machines is 5,000 at most. This is from IBM, and they were talking to the eventual founders of Xerox. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody's going to need more than 5,000 copy machines in the whole world. <laughs> oh, IBM. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, like IBM. The funny thing is that IBM today, even though they claim to be a paperless company, I guarantee you they have more than 5,000 copy machines in their own business in a now paperless <laughs> office. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, IBM, like, you know, what kind of pretty much the head of IBM, Thomas Watson, I remember this would have been like in the 40s where he said something to the effect, uh, I think there's a market, a world market for like five computers. Like that's, right. that's, that's, the that's quote. one said, of the quotes further down, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, it's further in this. All right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's just, that's hilarious. <laughs> and of course, you know, um, Brian has read this book about IBM and their role in cataloging people with ID systems in, in the Holocaust, as well as in South African. Yeah. Apartheid. Edward Black's IBM and the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great book. If anyone's interested, maybe someone will buy it through our stuff.sexandsciencehour.com uh, link and we'll get to talk about it. <laughs> in they more do detail. well to do it. Um, no one will ever need more than 637 kilobytes of memory for a personal computer. 640 kilobytes often ought to be enough for anybody. And that was said by Bill Gates in 1981. <laughs> I mean, he should know better. At, that, at this <laughs> right. point, this is inexcusable. At this point, he's already watched 15 to 20 years of Moore's Law play out. At this point, he should not <laughs> be making uh, statements like that, right? Yeah. Well, he also said we will never make a 32-bit operating system in 1989. <laughs> he just kept going. <laughs> he just kept going. <laughs> you know, I'll add one that I don't I don't see on this list that I think is hilarious is that, you know, which is in the vein of computers, but there is a the, the editor for PC Magazine. This was back in like 2001 maybe 
where he said we'll never need larger than an 80 gigabyte hard drive. Oh, or, yeah, I remember that. I, I mean, wow. Well, I remember us talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about it. <laughs> <laughs> that is so far off. And especially, yeah, I mean, even like Bill Gates, like, like Andreas is saying, you know, Bill should have known, especially he went from the Altair, you know, into <laughs> like the Tandys and everything else that, that you had in the 80s. Like, what is he thinking that, that that wasn't going to increase that much further? Unbelievable. <laughs> right. I predict the Internet will go spectacularly supernova and in 1996 it will catastrophically collapse. And that was said in 1995 <laughs> by Robert Metcalf, founder of 3Com, inventor of Ethernet. <laughs> and and the and credited with Metcalf's law, which is the network effect. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Which is the value of a network increases exponentially with the addition of each node. <laughs> well, these people could uh stand to add some more nodes in their thinking because <laughs> they need to expand their mind. <laughs> All right, I think we're done with that one. Let's move on, Andreas, to shall we the this the sad world of racist online dating. I thought you would like this one. <laughs> I, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was fascinating too. So this is exactly what it sounds like: a sneak peek inside the sad world of racist online dating by Mac Lamoureux from Vice. And now Vice is a, you know known for being a little bit sensationalist. I guess you could say they like to profile these sort of subcultures and make them look weird and and freakish and interesting, but. I would say this might not be too far off from the truth. So here's the article. White nationalists say it's difficult finding women to date. It's hard out there for a racist. While hating people who don't look like you has always existed, 2016 certainly seems like it was the special comeback for racism. The Trump election, the rise of the so-called alt-right, fake news, and glowing profiles of white nationalists have all emboldened the worst people in our society to once again be proud of their shitty views. Much like what Pulp Fiction did with John Travolta in the early 90s, 2016 has thrust white nationalism back to the forefront of our collective psyche, forcing our society to again, much like Travolta, stare continuously into its insane, twinkling dead eyes. <laughs> now, I have to stop down here for a second. I actually have been feeling like this for a while. Like, it, I just remember back in the 90s, I don't know, when I was like a kid, yeah, like you heard of like neo-Nazi groups and like skinheads and racists and stuff like that. But it was so like underground, like everybody knew that was not acceptable to be like a public white nationalist supremacist or whatever. But now it really does seem like it's it's almost becoming cool in some sectors, in some subcultures. Well, you know, I don't know, like Stormfront's been around for a good long while. I mean, I remember that existing back in the 90s. Um, and I knew I knew of people who, you know, I'll say at acquaintance level that they watched American History X as like a guide, not not as like to take in the message of this is where hate leads you, you know, mm. it leads to to death of family and all this business. Um, so I, I kind of feel like it's it's been there. And, and just like a lot of things that have happened with the, you know, the, the increased uh, growth of the internet that, that now there's just sort of a light on it. So I, I don't yeah, that's I, the I mean, thing. All subcultures have grown. Yeah. And yeah. That's, mm. that's, that's the real thing. I was reading this article about, uh, you know, the white nationalist racist dating sites. And in my mind, I was replacing white nationalism with any other niche interest, especially niche interests that you can only sustain with very, very strong confirmation bias. I was thinking, what about 
flat earth society dating mm. sites or um, alien conspiracy dating sites or which exists well, i was just I, about I'm to sure bring that it, up we've we've seen them before right what was that one that right. we saw it was called paranormal dating Param- or something. yeah something like yeah. that and it the tagline was you are not alone <laughs> right so for me the bottom line is that in all of these the common thread this isn't about really white nationalism this is this is about um insecurity of one's opinions to the point where you need to only associate with people who won't challenge your views and really really work at that confirmation bias um otherwise your your world has to kind of face the cognitive dissonance and white nationalism is is based on on laughable principles that are scientifically disproven easily concepts of race that are caricatures that don't exist in mm. in actual life that the you know, science that, was debunked like a hundred years ago and and not just the science of racism but now even the the fundamental basis of race has been disputed by biology completely right like, so so all of these things are based on bogus science and 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 a, a refusal to look at facts and instead to to willingly go for confirmation bias right willful ignorance and and that's exactly the same as if you're a flat earther or a chemtrail conspiracist or whatever hey uh, now andreas these... chemtrails are real <laughs> you know I, there's always a point where you have this conversation with someone and you start ticking off all of the conspiracies <laughs> and they'll stop you like screeching brakes at some point to go, well, all of the rest of that is crap, but this one, my pet conspiracy is actually yeah, real. Yeah, well, actually, you just haven't done enough research on it yet. If you had, you would realize that it was for real. But you see, this is the great I, dating advice is to just just go down the go down the list. Just, yeah, just talk about it's like it a really litmus fast. test. Yeah, it's like, a, yes, I don't know, exactly. like a uh, Excel, the Excel version of speed dating, right? <laughs> if she shows up wearing a tinfoil hat, then you you can skip ahead a few steps. <laughs> but it's so much more interesting than, you know, what's your favorite activity? Do you like long walks on the beach and <laughs> the nature and the outdoors? You can get so much more out of a conversation by starting with, what do you think about chemtrails and the flat earth conspiracy? Right. <laughs> and, and, and then you'll know like pretty quickly what, what, what kind of conversations you're going to have. So they might be fascinating. In fact, it might be better to date someone who has the complete opposite views of you in a conspiracy theory. And I think that's where these groups are really about being so insecure in your opinions or your views that you can't stand anyone disputing them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there. I love that phrase, the mark of an educated mind is to be able to entertain an idea without necessarily believing it or agreeing with it. And that's totally true. Like You, you kind of have to be able to talk to people you disagree with and have a productive conversation or else... I don't know, and then, or else you're just in a cult, right? You're in an echo chamber, and that's not good. Well, and everyone is. I mean, we we all are in echo chambers. The the, the, yeah. the human mind <laughs> has built in biases, confirmation biases, in group thinking, um, culturation, all of these things that that prevent us from being rational agents, right? That make it difficult. Even if you know the bug is there, you still you know, you still core dump on it. Mm. Uh, 
<laughs> knowing you have confirmation bias doesn't stop you from exhibiting confirmation bias. In fact, there's a study <laughs> that proves that the people knowingly with confirmation bias um, fell victim to confirmation bias. And so we all do it. The question is how how much you do it, right? And, mm. and how deeply you are allowed to do it. Wow, that's. I'd like to know more about that study. If you if you want to come back on at some point and bring in the article, that'd be interesting to hear about because it's. I just find it really fascinating that it doesn't it doesn't trigger enough self awareness to sort of break out of the cycle if you know that you have confirmation biases. Yeah, well, you know, the, the fundamental problem is that self-awareness um, is, is, is software running in your brain. And if your brain has a bug, you can't fix that with mm-hmm. another layer of software on top of it. <laughs> and a lot of our biases are, are really very deep-seated bugs. Well, not bugs. They're actually evolutionary features, and they're deep-seated because they're fundamental aspects of, of survival and, and social interaction. Right, and, and they were so useful and to us. And very much needed. Right, and they were useful in human history, but now they've we've sort of outgrown yeah, them. Like I can we're think stuck of, with the hardware. <laughs> yeah, like, a, what was it, like snakes and spiders. Apparently, there's a, you know, a, a cognitive predisposition to, or not cognitive, I guess, but, a, you know, a neural predisposition predisposition to be afraid of those things and or even like, if you see a shadow that looks like one of those yeah, yeah right. then you like, feel fear i mean you can get over it a bit i guess but you know they're they're kind of it's a theory anyway that that's there mm-hmm. and, and yeah absolutely. or things like uh catastrophizing where you you have or you have like one little negative aspect in the midst of different positive things and you blow the negative one way out of proportion and only focus on that right right that was a useful survival skill at one point in our evolutionary past but now it no longer serves us as much and so we have to we have to sort of become aware of it and it's always easier said than done so yeah i think the 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 strongest bias we have is tribalism and and that's what's exhibited most in in white nationalist thinking or any form of in-group out-group thinking yeah. Um, is to is to categorize people based on common characteristics and that was a very very useful survival characteristic for for loosely associated tribes to be able to trade and interact um there's safety in the in group and there there was danger in the out group right for um, sure and and yeah like i think the the way this article is written that was why i prefaced it by saying vice likes to sensationalize things because they mm-hmm. they really were kind of demonizing white supremacists per, supremacists and white nationalists and you know it's it's easy to do that if you disagree with them but when you start thinking about how common it is for all people to show these group preferences, group biases, then it becomes maybe a little easier to, I don't know, have a little bit more compassion and say we all fall into this kind of thinking sometimes, right? Yeah, and it's driven by fear and insecurity, which are very powerful uh, emotional underpinnings for for opinions, right? Yeah. But um, I, I mean, this whole thing, reading about it, Honestly, it doesn't provoke outrage in me. It it makes me feel sad because these people are desperately lonely. They're desperately afraid, yeah. desperately insecure, and obviously very, very lonely. And trying to find other people who will agree with them um, to, to deal with that loneliness. I mean, it, it really was quite sad to read the comments of various people who are describing their ideal um, partner and it's almost as if they're setting themselves up for failure because they because have that person such, doesn't exist. 
right. Yeah. They're like, I want a 100% white, um, you know, partner who is interested, obviously a straight partner, um, but who, because homophobia is very closely associated with white nationalism. Oh, yeah. But anyway. And so is misogyny, um, uh, which is why it's hard to find women in the movement. Right. And so it was a white woman who is interested in Germany, G- Germanic history and culture is 100% white yeah. Christian, a chaste virgin <laughs> yeah. who wants to have my babies, <laughs> who wants to please me and obey me and have lots of children and thinks I'm a hero. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, boy. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be lonely, right? If that's if those are standards, because those are some pretty difficult standards to meet. And it's kind of a catch 22 as well, because like, I mean, not that not that they need, you know, I'm kind of glad that the, the kind of person we just described doesn't exist in, in a way, you know, uh, but at the same time, like it's kind of a catch 22, because if they just had that special love in their life, like maybe they wouldn't be so hating so much yeah yeah that's a good point it's just an odd you know little almost a vicious circle but uh well so i want to read a little bit of this because we just sort of teased it but we we didn't really read it so how do white nationalists date well uh for many cyber hate mongers online dating is the way to go they say a lot of them utilize sites like plenty of fish okay cupid and so on with a statement in their profiles like if you're not white don't message me but for many that's not enough this is where sites like wasp love where white people meet, and Stormfront, an infamous neo-Nazi forum, enter. All sites that, willingly or not, cater to races who want to find love. And yeah, now I kind of wonder, like, I'm sure there are people who visit Stormfront to talk to other, like dudes who visit to talk to other dudes about, I guess, issues facing white people that they think that they're important to them. But you know, I think there might be a subtext of a lot of people going there because they're hoping they'll meet a partner of like mind. You know, sure. even though the site isn't explicitly for that, I agree that there's probably a lot of people looking for dating on there. So the the author of this piece says, I started my journey into this weird world with a simple Google search for alt-right dating. It brought up a site called Wasp Love, which advertises itself as a dating site for traditional Christians, white nationalists, quiverfuls, and Brian, you know about quiverfuls, right? Yeah, just quiverfuls. Christians who fundamentalist Christians who want to have as many kids as possible, right? Yeah, that, and they kind of live by their own rules, and you know, kind of a, sub- a subversive, I guess you could say, Christian sect of sorts. Oh, oh, it's subversive. Okay. Well, I mean, they they have aims. You know, they're they're trying to bring God's kingdom on earth here. So, I mean, you know, they they have a right. plan. They're kind of. I I always sort of chalk them up as the um, kind of like the the. the conservative version of Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. You know, it's, it's that sort of oh, thing. Oh, it's rules for conservatives. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the the opposite end of that spectrum. So, yeah. Yeah, anyway. So, Quiverfuls, con- Confederates, Southern... Con- sorry. <laughs> Quiverfuls, Confederates, Southern Nationalists, and the alt-right. And uh, then they, they, like, go into profiling some specific users. And this guy, here's his profile picture. He's got a Confederate flag in the background. <laughs> um... <laughs> And he's got, I don't know, some some stuff set up. There's a profile on Wasp Love. Now, I don't know if there's much point in reading the rest of it. You can go and read the rest of the article. It's kind of it's kind of a long article, but um I think we already made the important points of like yeah, I mean, it is lonely if you're looking within a narrow subset of a subculture and you yep. kind of can't stand to have your ideas challenged and you want someone who already agrees with you. It becomes even more isolating and lonely because then you can't find them. 
because they don't exist. Stay tuned, there's more coming up. This is Sex and Science Hour. Andreas has written a book. It's called The Internet of Money. If you liked our technology segment where we talked about the worst tech predictions, well, Andreas has some happy, good tech predictions for the future. (laughs) And The Internet of Money is uh, telling you all about what the future of money will actually look like. So um, we have some exciting news. I am actually going to be narrating the audiobook version of The Internet of Money, and I'm super excited. That is going to be coming out in the next few months. Definitely look for it. It'll be available on Amazon, iTunes, and Audible.com. I'm really excited that you're going to be doing the audio narration. I mean, uh, obviously, you're a fantastic professional in audio narration, and and your voice is, is fantastic. But, um, you know, a lot of people suggested this, and at first it seemed weird. Like, the videos are out there. You could just hear me saying it. Um, But it's not the same because you can't do a video which has audience and it has me stumbling for words. And you can't do that very well as an audiobook. So it kind of made sense. Uh, And just, of course, who better to do it than you, Stephanie? So I'm just really super excited about this. Oh, thank you so much. It's going to be really fun. So definitely look for it over the next couple of months and we'll keep you updated for sure. Yeah. And hundreds of people have asked me for this. It's, it's been nonstop. One of the top requests I get uh, has been for an audiobook version of this book. That's the second most popular thing that you get through your contact form on your website besides trolley emails. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, Andreas, did you know that 20% of men, apparently, who identify as straight, watch gay porn? I mean, yeah, I've heard of statistics like that. It, 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 makes, it makes perfect sense to me. Oh, so I, you're I not even skeptical. I don't see why that's surprising. Wait, what, so why does, no, it make, not skept- why does it make sense to you? Tell me about this. Well, because I think how, how one identifies and, and how their brain works or what they find uh, titillating or sexually arousing really you know i believe in the in the idea that i don't believe i i have seen the scientific evidence and the scientific evidence strongly supports that both gender and sexuality lie on a spectrum um Mm -hmm. and and within that spectrum there are infinite shades and you know when someone says they identify as straight other than probably the edges of that range, uh, it's it's a blended picture, right? There, it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. It's it's so I I don't see I don't see that as strange at all. Yeah, I mean the the number was what shocked me most. I mean, one out of five straight identified men um, apparently does something that a lot of people would take issue with as far as them identifying as straight, which is what they watch gay porn. And now we talked about an article a couple weeks ago on our C word special. The C word was Christmas, just so you know. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it was about so-called bud sex where (laughs) rural, usually white heterosexual identified men meet up with other men that are just like them. And they have, sex with them but they still all identify as straight and a lot of them have wives and children and families but every once in a while they'll go meet up with their guy friend and have sex usually not you know usually limited to 
oral sex, not not the butt sex. They don't want to go there. And they don't want to uh, do things that they consider stereotypically gay, like go to a gay bar. So it's this and they still identify as straight. So it's this fascinating thing where people are willing to sort of bend the definitions and rules when it when it comes to something they want to do. And now I think you can identify however you want to. It's a identity is a personal thing and orientation. Identity is a cultural thing. I think that's the real key here, mm. which is that what you like to to you know touch, look at, suck, whatever, <laughs> um, differs from what you're willing to uh, identify yourself as in a cultural setting. Mm-hmm. So how you identify has all of this baggage of assumptions and presumptions and cultural associations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whereas, you know, how you like to touch your buddy maybe doesn't. And I think that's the big discrepancy between the two. Now, obviously, um, if you like to touch your buddy sexually and your buddy is of the same, you know, at least gender presentation as you, then scientifically speaking, that would classify you as bisexual or homosexual or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, that's very different from identifying, right? Mm. And, and and it's because of the baggage that's carried with identification. Who cares how people identify? I mean, that's the meaningless thing. Right. Um, because it's easier. Right? The identification is not is not backed by anything, right? It's just, <laughs> you, you can't, you can't, actions speak louder than words. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Actions speak louder than words. And yeah, there is, I, I feel... Maybe a little bit, I don't want to say annoyed, but part of me is like, oh, something's not right about that. And I think it's because people who aren't, who by their actions put themselves outside of the category of 100% heterosexual are still enjoying the benefits of being perceived as heterosexual by the rest of society. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess you could Well, of course, but they have to. I mean, because the, the, think about it the other way around, the penalty the stigma, yeah. the the social penalties for identifying a certain way, especially in certain parts of uh, the U.S., but in many parts of the world, are so severe that if you're if you're anywhere close in the spectrum where you can at least pretend uh, to be straight, mm. you'll grab that as a life raft. Yeah, right, absolutely. Um, of course, they want to be in the closet, and and then the question is how feasible is that and if if buddy sex is is gives you the occasional relief then it's very feasible to remain in the closet if if right if works out are, fine <laughs> right if you're completely uninterested in 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 women uh if you're particularly feminine in your behavior or your effect it's a lot harder to stay in the closet right, right. so then it becomes a real conflict but even there yeah, I can really like I mean just to kind of bolster sort of that that identity can be very much cultural. I mean, you know, how many other countries is it totally fine and acceptable and has been forever for men to kiss, you know, in certain ways. Like as a greeting to say Yeah, yeah like yeah. as a greeting or whatever, but I mean, you know, in in certain parts of America and certainly in past decades in America, oh no way. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not doing that. Uh Now, Andreas, you grew up in Greece. Do people ki- do men kiss to say hello? Um, yes, men kiss on the cheek to say hello, yet there is very strong social stigma against homosexuality in Greece, and that is a modern 
feature brought by Christianity. Hmm. Uh, it was not a stigma in ancient Greece. In fact, uh, it was widely accepted, celebrated, uh, you know, openly talked about, mm. and it was very much part of the culture. Um, yeah, it was considered like central both, for both, social cohesion, right? I mean, like it was required. Yes. Both male homosexuality, bisexuality, and female homosexuality and bisexuality, and and the whole spectrum um, was celebrated in in ancient Greek culture. Mm. Then Christianity happens. Now. Um, there, there's a lot of social stigma. Greece has become more of a macho culture because of Christianity. Um, there are strong stereotypical roles for men and women. Mm. There's a lot of danger being openly gay in in Greece. Um, and, and like so as it's, far it's as danger very... of, of physical violence, getting beat up. Oh yeah, yeah, abs absolutely. Yeah, there's danger of physical violence and there's, ostracism. There's ostracism. Uh, being separated or d dismissed from your family. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All of those problems. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not a good place for, uh, well, for people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like you said, in those cu cultures where homosexuality is, is strongly stigmatized, then, you know, the people on, on the extreme ends of the spectrum where they're kind of closer to a hundred percent gay or a hundred percent straight, it's kind of clear cut for them in the case of the people who are super gay they can't hide it there's nothing they can do to kind of stuff themselves in the closet they have to just deal with the consequences the people who are mostly straight yeah they're pretty comfortable just being straight and uh, never really think twice about it but all the people in the middle it sort of forces them it sort of squeezes them to towards rounding up towards heterosexuality if they're if they're possibly able to do it and that's not an external thing right i think that's the key thing to realize here it's not that they're rounding up their identity to hetero externally just for other people's benefit. They're internalizing that rounding up. Yes. So I would guess that a lot of the people who self-identify as hetero and have buddy sex are internally so conflicted that they absolutely internally identify as hetero and will use all kinds of rationalizations <laughs> to do that because yes. th th that's the power of the social sigma it's it's that it's self-reinforcing and internalized by the by the people who suffer from it mm. sure yeah i mean I'm, I'm reminded of the kinsey scale you know talking about the rounding up i mean that's what one to or zero to six right and somewhere people yeah. fall mm -hmm. within generally in between most people aren't a zero or a six mm -hmm. uh, usually you know they're somewhere in the middle now i don't know if we mentioned this already but like i thought the other interesting thing about this study wasn't just the 20 percent of straight men watching gay porn but 55 percent of men who are gay watched straight porn <laughs> really <laughs> yeah 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 50, wow 55 percent watch straight porn and that kind of that that makes me wonder too is how much of this is just seeing on display and not to say that i mean there's all different kinds of porn i i it's insane when when people demonize porn in the abstract it's like what well, that that's crazy because yeah i agree there's porn that's terrible there's porn that's beautiful right mm -hmm. um and I kind of wonder if, if just like what people like seeing is perhaps some kind of, I don't know, maybe somewhere in all of this, even if it's not a, uh, a relationship type that they choose, that they're just seeing some authentic passion for once. And sure. that's why they enjoy it so much. I mean, especially like, honestly, you know, for the, the straight guys that, you know, 20% of them that watch, uh, uh, you know, gay porn, mm -hmm. like I wouldn't be surprised if, 
I mean, you look at, at how demeaning so much porn is towards women. Mm-hmm. If I mean, and not to say gay porn, I'm sure that's demeaning too. I don't, you know, personally, I don't watch it. Not that I have any problem with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of wonder if there is like, they're seeing something, oh, this actually isn't so, you know, so goddamn brutal mm-hmm. uh, towards the other person, you know, toward, towards the person getting stooped or whatever. Right. Uh, and, or maybe, and maybe it's the opposite. And for 55% of gay men, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of wonder if they're just looking for more of the abstract idea of just seeing real authentic passion and they'll watch whatever sexual act, whatever partners there are that just kind of delivers that. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's more empathic people. I, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I, I wonder if that's part of it. Well, I think there's a lot of bisexual erasure that goes on speaking as oh, one of those bisexuals yeah. myself. Well, that might explain <laughs> the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. Because I, I definitely know mm-hmm. with gay men or with, with bisexual men, a lot of them just identify as gay if they if they are outwardly feminine or queer appearing. They'll just kind of call themselves gay because bisexual men, like a lot of people don't even believe they exist. Right. There's no community. There's like women are afraid to date them because they're afraid they're secretly gay. Men are afraid to date them because they're afraid they're going to leave them for a woman. And so what are they? They're like stranded in the wilderness and there's nobody to support them. <laughs> <laughs> which sure. is too bad because they're not I I don't know they're not calling themselves what they really are and then it perpetuates the idea that they don't exist because no one's willing to identify that way and I'm not blaming them for it I'm just saying there's a lot of cultural pressure and stigma and so I could see yeah if if a guy is is actually truthfully kind of bisexual or somewhere in the middle of the Kinsey scale um and is in a maybe partnered with a man or identified as gay but watches straight porn as a secret fantasy mm-hmm. he's actually really bisexual but he he just identifies yeah. as gay because that's easier for him than calling himself bisexual and same thing with i don't know same thing with the this ostensibly straight guys that watch gay porn maybe they're a little bit bisexual but they're indulging that secret fantasy by <laughs> by watching the kind of porn that they watch sure so I want to read just a little bit of this article here. This is actually from askmen.com, which I found interesting because that's kind of a, I don't know, I think of Ask Men as sort of a typical macho straight guy kind of <laughs> website, right? It's like, it's almost like a, like a lad magazine or whatever. <laughs> kind of an art of manliness, something like that. Yeah, uh, maybe not that much, but it's, it's definitely like a men's website. Um, so anyway, uh, and in usually a men's website, the subtext is straight men's website. <laughs> yeah. So, study reveals one in five straight men watch gay porn. Trending news, 20% of guys are watching the last kind of porn you'd expect by Paul Watson. Long story short, a fascinating study reported in the Archives of Sexual Behavior has reported that 20% of men who see themselves as straight watch gay porn, raising intriguing questions over male sexual identity. Long story. As attitudes to sexuality continue to evolve, the notion that people must fit exactly into a sexual pigeonhole, no pun intended, <laughs> becomes increasingly outdated. Although we have the terms straight, gay, and bisexual to define ourselves, and by the way, there's a lot more terms than that nowadays. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a, almost a multitude of terms. There seems to be more of a spectrum to sexual attraction, which manifests in a new study of male porn viewing habits. Dr. Martin J. Downing and his colleague asked 821 gay, straight, and bisexual men what kind of porn they're in the habit of watching, and the results came back as something of a surprise. It emerged that 55% of men identifying as gay watch straight porn, and as you said, Brian, and possibly more expect more unexpectedly, 21% of men who say they are straight watch gay porn. Interestingly, 
and they didn't say anything. <laughs> well, here they're talking about the bisexuals here. Interestingly, the porn viewing habits of bisexual men were completely distinctive and different from straight men who chose to watch gay sex. They watched a lot of straight, gay, and bisexual porn. So bisexuals just watch everything. <laughs> <laughs> Downing wrote, bisexual men are more like heterosexual men in some things and more like men in other things, but that's a reflection of their unique attractions. They're not identical to either group, which I think is really interesting for understanding bisexuality. The study seems to reinforce the idea of a spectrum of sexuality, at least with porn viewing habits, and that straight men seem to value variety more than you might think. So um, it's self-reported. Now, there's always a problem with self-reported studies where people may feel ashamed or embarrassed and they don't want to admit uh, the truth about whatever sure. their, their habits really are. So if they got if they got 20% of as straight identified guys to admit to watching gay porn on a self-reported study. I mean, it's not like they hooked them up to a, a machine that measured the blood flow to their penis or their... But they did. Oh, they did? <laughs> I, I missed that part. In, 1990, in 1996, in a study uh, conducted... Um, hang on, let me find a specific university. No, this is this is another study, not the one we we're oh, talking okay. about here. Uh, but is absolutely exactly what you're talking about. The University of Essex, the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the University of Rochester in 1996, they found a very strong correlation between expressions of homophobia and arousal by same-sex images. <gasps> Shocker! Um, and so, yes, the, the, the trope that we all knew is that the most rabid, homophobic republicans are almost always you know using a wide stance in a men's bathroom <laughs> it's absolutely yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely true um and and so what they what they found was that um participants in the study who uh, in a pre-study interview had expressed strong tendencies towards uh measures against homosexuality uh legislation against homosexuality um, aversion or other strong tendencies that indicated homophobia when hooked up to a machine that's uh, that's tested blood flow to their penis in fact um, and shown images flashed on a screen for a fraction of a second doesn't hit the conscious mind can't really see what's going on uh, or doesn't really perceive the conscious mind and they they found that they had a much higher correlation between those who uh, exhibited homophobic tendencies and those who were aroused by same-sex images. And to me, this makes perfect sense. Mm. Um, it's simply the case, in my experience, that men who are on the straight side of the spectrum, who are hetero, uh, heterosexual, simply don't think about gay sex and certainly don't think about it enough to spend time. But the other more important insight is that I never could imagine it being a choice, mm. right? Because I don't make a conscious choice mm -hmm. um, as a hetero guy. To me, it's not a choice. There's what I like and there's something that simply doesn't seem particularly attractive to mm -hmm. me. But I can see how people who have same-sex arousal they would obviously see it as a choice. It's a choice they fight all right. the time. Yeah, they're constantly making that choice and they're grudgingly making it. Right. And they think everybody's making that choice. Yeah. So that explains a lot. And the rhetoric, but, the, yeah, that's the, the strong, you know, it's like when someone protests too much, often they're trying to convince themselves of the very thing that they're saying. Sure.
Right. So the the this is uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, reaction formation, a defense mechanism. Yeah. When a person overcompensates for emotions and impl- impulses that cause them anxiety by aggressively pursuing the opposing tendency. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's exactly sounds like exactly what's going on. Now I. I actually just did, um, I'm a voice actor and I just did a course about Freud. I narrated a college course about Freud. And so I got knee deep in this stuff for a little while pretty recently. And, you know, Freud was criticized for having some weird ideas, but his defense mechanisms were spot on that he talked about, you know, denial and reaction formation and a couple of others. And actually, um, there was an interesting book that a friend recommended to me about Freud where Basically, early on in his career, the thesis of this book was early on in his career, he essentially did some studies and he found that a lot of the psychological problems that people were experiencing, including when they somaticized them and developed body problems because that were stemming from emotional trauma, was because the women were sexually abused. Mm. And he started saying that and presenting those findings. And basically, people said, oh, no, 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 we can't talk about that. You just shove it under the rug. And so then he came up with all these weird theories to try to explain it, like the penis envy thing. But it was really because he kind of got told, hey, shut up. You can't talk about this stuff. Mm. Yep. So very interesting. And actually, that segues kind of perfectly into our next article, unfortunately. Um, Not exactly, but this is an article that got shared on my Facebook and... I, you know, usually when someone makes a wall post, I know you don't use Facebook, Andreas, but usually good for when, you, Andreas, yeah, good for you. <laughs> good for you. I kind of wish I could tear myself away sometimes. But usually when someone makes a wall post on Facebook, it's like, okay, maybe it gets one like, maybe I see it because I got a notification. It doesn't usually turn into a giant comment thread. But somebody posted this article on my Facebook wall. And people just lost their minds. This was, it turned into a dozens of page, you know, comment thread with all these people, you know, leaving comments with their opinions and talking about their own life experience and stuff. And I, you know, I just left one comment and then I said, okay, the rest of it, I'm going to shut up now. I'm going to talk about it on the show. But this seemed to be a really hot button issue. So I wanted to bring it up. And it's about daddy daughter dates. This is from metro.co.uk. And it's an opinion piece from a mom, Rebecca Reed. She says daddy-daughter dates are everything that is wrong with this world. If you thought the story of a dad who takes his little girl out on a monthly date is cute, then I've got news for you. It's not. It's creepy. And what's more, it's symptomatic of the poisonous ways that we treat male parenting. In case you missed it, and she's writing about another mom posting on Facebook about a daddy-daughter date. She says, in case you missed it, mom, whatever, posted a Facebook status about her husband taking their daughter on dates, writing, quote, my husband decided that once a month he will take our little girl out on a date where she gets all dressed up and gets taken out for cake and ice cream. Today was their first night doing it. He helped her pick out a dress for her to wear, got her a little purse ready for her, held the door open for her, and made her feel like a princess. She loved it and was so happy when she Ugh. got home. <laughs> Andres is barfing in his mouth already. <laughs> she loved it and was so happy when she got home. She will always know how she deserves to be treated because her dad set such a high example. And then she links to a, a screenshot of the Facebook post. And then now the mom that's critiquing this, back to her point of view, she says, I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that being treated like a princess would actually involve being married off at the age of 12 to a man that you've never met to secure a political alliance. (laughs) Also, (laughs) 
Also, that's like the people who say, well, if you really want to defend traditional marriage, then you better marry your daughter off in exchange for 12 camels. Yeah, for 12 camels and (laughs) a couple plots of land. Also, she says, if you want to raise a woman who has a healthy attitude toward men, giving her one afternoon a month where she has to look pretty before she's given treats, not the way to do it. But there's a bigger issue at play here than playing fast and loose with concept of, quote, dating. And that's people who are queuing up to congratulate a man for spending some time with his kid. Thinking, Think about that. Do we see mothers getting 89,000 Facebook likes, likes for mopping up sick, sick and doing the school run? I think she means barf or something and doing the school run. Of course not. What do we go nuts for fathers spending time with their kids? Why do we call it babysitting when a dad is active in childcare? Why are we surprised that the person who helped create the child then deigns to spend time with it? Taking your kid out for cake and ice cream in a cute outfit is the easy bit. It's the fun bit. It's what you imagine parenting will be like. How many moms would be delighted to have the opportunity for that kind of time with her child? Trying to wrestle a screaming toddler into a trolley so that you can get a supermarket shop done before starting the school run? That's hard. So, and then it goes on a little bit more, but it's just basically complaining about, you know, this, why does this dad get praised for doing this princess date with his daughter? And, you know, moms would not get the same treatment. So there's obviously a couple of issues at play, but I want to talk... So many. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot going on here to unpack and we're going to do that. But basically the comments that I received on this Facebook post were like half of it was like, "Oh, my dad used to take me out for princess dates too and I loved it." And then the other there were another type that was like fathers or parents saying, "It's great when parents spend time with their kids. I would give anything to spend more time with my kid." And and then there were like maybe two people who were like Oh, this is a little weird and creepy to call it a date. Like if a, you know, if a father took his son out for an ice cream cone, we wouldn't call it a date. And what is this weird sexualized thing where it has all the elements of an adult date, but it's between a dad and a little girl? That's why do we need to call it a date? And why do we need, why does, you know, why do we need to frame it in those terms? So yeah, it turned into a really contentious issue. But Andreas, if you want to take a, crack at unpacking this <laughs> for us oh my so many yeah. layers um, it's like a multi-layer <laughs> cake that needs to be <laughs> yes yeah. it's a multi-layer creek <laughs> um, it's it's just so calm you know i mean i i think i can i can sympathize with a lot of the different uh perspectives on this on the mm-hmm. one hand you know this this idea of celebrating um, a male parent's involvement in in parenting as a unique event is 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 demeaning and patronizing to to, to fathers mm-hmm. um, and and to mothers it's and to mothers it's it's the it's the bigotry of low expectations for yeah. fathers it's the unsung hero. Uh, kind of crisis for mothers it's it's all of that packed into one so yeah i see that and i can also see why people react to this and remember cherished times of their childhood with without any of the weird creepy connotations you know spending time with your parent and positive time uh father daughter bonding time all of that's great i mean that's that's great it's positive it's reaffirming great um, and then there's the creepy side, mm-hmm. and and there's multiple creepy sides. To this obviously calling it a date, yeah, um, that's creepy. Uh, and you're right, all of this and the 
the the princess thing is a trigger for me. Um, I I don't get that at all. I don't get why you would want your young daughter to ever be exposed to that messaging. Um, all of that, the Disney princess bullshit. <laughs> I think I find. Ah, it is just so damaging. It's so, so prevalent. Sick. I mean, first of all, it starts it's in so prevalent, it yeah. starts in monarchy, right? Like we don't have kings and queens, right? right? So we don't have princesses. I mean, even well, I'm British, so oh, we do. oh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And it's and it's and it's fascinating that we still do, right? right? And and that's that's part of it. This glamorization of feudalism is just horrifying to me, and and of the patriarchy that it implies. Yeah, for sure. And right. Um, what was I going to say? Well, I mean, just like the idea of, I mean, really, let's let's be clear. Monarchy is a person ruling over other people. Like, that is just so horrendous, you know, straight up. Uh, right. And to want to apply that. Yeah, that, I, I have issues with that. Go, go ahead. Well, also, there are no, for the, for the amount of times that little girls and little boys, everybody, is exposed to this message, this princess narrative and culture, what is the princess looking for? Well, she's looking for her prince charming, right? Mm-hmm. To come rescue her and or a knight, or a knight in shining mm-hmm. armor, right? Or her dad is the king until she finds um she finds her prince charming or the knight in shining armor. And she's looking for a man to save her. She's pretty much helpless and she's looking for someone to come rescue her. And in real life, there are no Prince Charmings coming to rescue you. It's a real dangerous trap to think that there are and to be waiting for him. And he may never come. He will never come because you have to, you know, you can't be just living your life waiting around for somebody to rescue you and save you. My mental image of Andreas was just shattered. I, I oh, thought. Andreas was your Prince Charming. <laughs> your knight in shining armor. <laughs> your knight in shining um, blockchain armor. Yeah, right. <laughs> With security stickers yeah, <laughs> all over his chain. Pretty man. much the only princess, uh, pr- the only princess archetype that I think works is Xena Warrior yeah. Princess. She is not helpless. She doesn't give a shit. She doesn't need anyone to save her. And she's her. a lesbian and, <laughs> or bisexual. And she she can beat the shit out of yeah. anybody, <laughs> including her, including the knight in shining armor who she just killed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> But other than that, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, so that's what I think of these dates. I mean, to me, the whole thing, the way it was presented, daddy-daughter date, princess precious, um, dressing her up, taking her out for candy, all of that, it's modeling patriarchy. It's modeling, this is how a relationship with a man (laughs) should work. You should be subservient, helpless. He should provide and rescue you and put you on a pedestal and have an asymmetric relationship of adoration towards you uh, in which you have no power. It's modeling patriarchy and and it's it's absolutely pernicious yeah. and toxic. I, I agree with that. And also there was another thing in there that I found disturbing, which was the quote on the on the Facebook post that got all these likes was she will always know how she deserves to be treated because her dad such set such a high example. OK, well, the flip side of she deserves to be treated nicely and taken out and bought ice cream for is that she doesn't deserve to be treated that way if perhaps she doesn't wear that dress or she doesn't do everything her dad 
tells her to do or whatever. She doesn't act in feminine ways. So then does she not deserve to be treated nicely? No, I mean, everybody deserves to be treated nicely because they're a human being, whether or not they conform to these gender roles or whatever. And, uh, (laughs) or these consumer roles. Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, buy the pretty dress, buy the tiara, and let's go out and buy some cake and ice cream. I mean, it's, the the whole thing is just one giant advertisement. The entire date has product placement opportunities yeah, everywhere. And, and, you know, and this is the this is the other part that like I think this is kind of the second fold, even though I agree it's a multi layer creep cake, like Andreas uh, poignantly <laughs> said. But uh is the kind of the social media aspect of this to like where there's there's all this reinforcement for this. I mean, first off, Facebook is you know, has a huge problem with the fact that look, you are seeing and, and the article kind of mentioned that, like, you know, well, you're not seeing a mother, you know, cleaning up some vomit or something, right? Uh, you know, how many likes would that get? Probably none. In fact, right. you probably get reported and say, How dare you post that on Facebook or something, right? Um, and and that's that's the other part of this that that I really don't dig is that, you know, Facebook shows off is kind of like a greatest hits of somebody's life, uh, you know, at best, uh, at worst, it's other things, you know, and- <laughs> the vision of what they want how they want their life to be perceived from the outside right yeah exactly and so you know to have this like like now what is this turning into first off you know are you kind of schlepping out your daughter to get a bunch of you know social reinforcement and you know a bunch of dopamine into your brain from that little red number on the globe uh you know like yeah first you're treating her as like a trinket to take out and show off and oh isn't she pretty and i'll just take her out once a month and show her off and then put her back in the house for the rest of the month right i mean i worry that you know maybe intrinsically at first you really wanted to you know just have a fun night with your daughter or something okay fine and i'm not even getting into the whole privacy issues of Hey, you know, you're uploading your kid's picture. Did the kid have any say in that oh, matter? Yeah. Of course not. Uh, but, you know, not, not, not even getting into that. But like, even at first, if he was intrinsically just wanting, you know, to be a good steward as a parent and, you know, show, show his, his child a good time. Um, eventually, I think it would get to the point, especially when you get entire articles written about you or you get thousand, you know, what is it? 43,000 likes or 71,000 likes on this thing, 43,000 reshares. You know, you're going to get to the point where, where you think, you know, I mean, Shakespeare becomes literal and that all the world's a stage and mm-hmm. you're not really going to be that intrinsic. When does it become, you know, I'm worried. How that are it you stops spending any the kid right? How are you spending quality you. time with your kid if you're focused on the Facebook likes and cataloging it? Right. And, and then like your then your time out with your little princess turns into an Instagram story. And and how what are you teaching? What are you modeling then? Mm. Is that my entire, you know, to your kid is that their entire life is, I better take a picture of this. You know, they never get to be in the actual moment. Uh, I, yeah, there, there's, again, there's so much wrong with this story. I mean, what the person's pointing out is right on, but you, you know, with, with this, uh, post, I should say, there's so much wrong with it. Uh, just, just madness. Anyway. Now we don't have the experiment to compare it side by side and do like an EAB split test or whatever, but do you think, do you guys think a, a post about like just replace little girl with little boy, a dad spending time with his son, taking his son out for an ice cream cone in a baseball game or something like that? Um, we'll keep the gender roles going. Do you guys think that would get as many likes or do you think it's something about the fact that the dad is spending time with the daughter and it's like a princess date kind of thing? I, I would love to see that post, but I'd love to see it using all of the tropes of the patriarchy, just in a in a reverse way. So first, little little Timmy got dressed up in his best little boy shorts. He looked so cute. His hair was carefully parted, and he had a sparkle on his face. <laughs> then uh, everybody's 
you know, praised him for being such a cute little prince. And his daddy proudly took him out for cake and ice cream. Uh, you know, it's, it's it just when you if you flip it that way, it just seems so preposterous and contrived. And yeah, weird. right. Everybody knew that little Timmy deserved to be treated very nicely because his dad was setting this high example. Right? It does sound preposterous. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's always a good test for is something. Is there any gender weirdness going on? Because if you flip the genders, then and it sounds it sounds ridiculous. Then you know that there could be an issue with it, or at least there's a double standard going on. So mm-hmm. yeah. So I mean, and I, we should say like. I don't know about you guys, but I'm totally pro parents spending time with their kids, all parents, moms, dads, grandparents, aunts and uncles, friends of parents, anybody like as far as I'm concerned, kids getting love and attention is a great thing. So we're not like ragging on dads spending time with their daughters. It's just like there are so many other ways you could show love to a little girl or boy besides making it this gender role infused outing that is called a date and sort of models like an adult date that it seems like a very it it seems like the dad is probably being put into a pretty narrow box as far as how he thinks it's socially acceptable to express love to his daughter yeah and then like what what if Mm -hmm. like so this is training this is training for modeling an adult relationship with a man for the little girl what happens when um, she grows up and, you know, a man takes her out on a date and it's just like this. He buys her stuff. She gets dressed up in a dress. He tells her she's so pretty and she deserves to be treated nice. And, she, and then she's like, oh, oh, this is what love looks like. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then she, you know, gets hurt <laughs> when she finds that it's not really love. If at any point during the date, your date partner calls you a princess, that is a red flag. You immediately go for the safe word and exit from that date. (laughs) What is the safe word? Frog? (laughs) Or or if you get called a prince, right? I think it it would be even more obviously creepy at that point. I, I think the safe word, there's this thing they have in some, I don't remember what restaurant it was, where if you, um, they have a poster in the ladies' room, if you ask for a specific drink from the bartender, and there's three variants of it, yeah. they they can either escort you to your car and make sure you get home safely, or they can call a friend, a taxi, or they can call the police, depending on how creepy your date has been. Right. Yeah. I th- I've heard of that. I think there's a lot of bars that have some version of that. The one I saw was called like Angel Shot. And if you order like yes. an Angel Shot with salt or with ice, they'll escort you to your car. If you order an Angel Shot with lime, they'll call the police, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I. So, yeah, that's that's when you go for the Angel Shot. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what did you call me? Princess. I'm out of here. <laughs> that's a hard limit. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that actually wraps us up. We did five articles. That's pretty good, Andreas. <laughs> I have an email that came through um, just this morning, which I think would wrap things up beautifully. Oh, let's do it. So, excellent. So, this is an email that came through my contact form on my website, which every day is just such a treasure trove. <laughs> of, of <laughs> is there sarcasm in that voice? I can't tell. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. So... Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. This contact form is is just this roller coaster. One moment I get these messages that are just so touching. They're beautiful. You know, people saying, 
thank you for the work you do. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I've changed my career or whatever. It's getting praise from, from complete strangers and it's life affirming and, and beautiful. And then you get these toxic troll things. And I'm on this, um, roller coaster between self affirmation and needing psychotherapy. So, uh, here's the email that came in. Subject, you insulted me. Hi, you, or an alias, called me a dick on Facebook. In my country, this is a criminal offense and may or may not be sexual assault. I want to know how you stand on this before I go further. Regards. <laughs> Regards. <laughs> I like the way it closes. Sincerely yours, in outrage. <laughs> Wow. So you don't even use Facebook, so that's pretty easy. Well, so I'm not on Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook since 2011. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. So that's okay, that's bizarre. Um then of course, uh calling someone a dick on Facebook. Um well, it, I don't care if in your country it's a criminal offense. Um you live in a shithole. So <laughs> in my country in my country, that's free speech, <laughs> and given the tone of your message, um, you probably are a bit of a dick. You certainly have a very thin skin. Right, I didn't have an opinion but, before, but, but now I really do think you're a dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, in my country, it's a criminal offense. I suggest you move or implement some reforms in the constitutional rights afforded to you and your fellow citizens. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> Otherwise... And also, it may or may not be a sexual assault. Well, at this point, what can I say to that? You know, I mean, <laughs> that that really that really de- de- dilutes the seriousness of the word sexual assault. Yeah. Like, if if you being called a dick on Facebook is sexual assault, then then I don't know why. Boy, I, mean, I can't. I even. mean, yeah, <laughs> I all the even. insults that fly around on Facebook on a regular basis. I mean, I I'm pretty sure I see about fifty times worse than that on a daily on my daily feed. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that was uh, that was my morning uh, email. It uh, just came in, and, and what do you say to that? I mean, obviously, I'm not you read it on Sex and Science uh, Hour. That's what you do with it. <laughs> I do, I do. You know, I could do I could do an entire show based on creepy, weird emails I get on a daily basis. Um, but there's no response to this. I'm not going to feed the troll. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it sounds like he was no. literally just trolling. <laughs> no, I just, I, I add them to my list of, uh, of potentially dangerous people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, keep talking. You're revealing who you are so I can avoid you in the future. <laughs> right. But now you do take uh, assault and sexual harassment very seriously, Andreas, which is one thing I really appreciate about you because you have a policy that you won't speak at events and you're a hot in demand speaker. So this is this is stuff um, that you won't speak at events unless they have a harassment policy. Uh, yeah, that is, that is the case. Um, and not just uh, have one, but one that is published and enforced. And if it's not published or enforced uh, then that constitutes uh, cancellation of my contract, adverse cancellation of my contract. So yeah, you've gotten some pushback from that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I can. I I heard that. There's there. Generally speaking, the events that I deal with, they don't really have a problem with it. Some of them say I don't have one, so therefore we're going to institute one just for this event. And I'm like, great, that's the whole point of this, is to introduce the concept, make you think about why you don't have one, make you think about what it would take to adopt and enforce one, 
and and kind of shift the the the, the trends in in these conferences. So that's it works. But I also get a lot of pushback um, from, uh, especially from the libertarian and anarchist community, where uh, they feel that this is an undue imposition on their free speech and their freedoms um, to put any requirements like that in a conference. Uh, and, and there are certain conferences where I simply can't speak because there's no way they would adopt a policy like this. One of them would be something like Pork Fest. Right, yeah. yeah. Imagine basic human decency, you know, being a... a- no, we don't really care about harassment. We're not going to adopt a <laughs> harassment policy. And now I get what they're like, where they might be coming from. If if I had to guess, I would say they probably maybe think it's impossible to enforce. But but maybe on some level they they do sort of think it's not that important or it doesn't. It's not a problem. When I think that's kind of blindfolded to the actual situation. Right. If your current if your current policy is here no evil and you have no safe channel through which a victim of harassment can report that they've been harassed and know that action will be taken against the harasser and not the victim, as is mostly the case, uh, then you will not hear about any harassment that's happening at your conferences. But I will, and I do, because part of making a statement like this um, means that people know that they can come and talk to me and my uh, immediate response will be, I believe you, and let's find out how we can protect people from this particular aggressor. And when I do hear things like that, it's usually not just one report. I hear from several people uh, who have been harassed by specific repeat offenders, because that is also a common uh, characteristic Mm. of sexual harassment, is that the people who do it, they do it again and again, and they get emboldened Mm -hmm. and they escalate. Um, So I, I know I'm getting real reports because I hear independently from multiple people about the same characters again and again. And meanwhile, the conference organizers or event organizers are completely oblivious. And their attitude is, well, there is no harassment because we haven't heard about it. Well, yeah, because the reason you haven't heard about it is because your most likely reaction will be to remove the victim from the conference um, because the other person is an important keynote speaker. Uh, or a fixture of the community or someone who is an authority in the space, as they usually are, because they can get away with it. This is a problem in all kinds of activist communities, especially when people don't want are reluctant to, like, turn to the state for, like, you know, justice services, because I think totally legitimately they have complaints about how justice is done in those in that system and they don't think it serves their needs. And so, you know, um, what do you do? You have to sort of police your community internally, or maybe not the word police is not the right word, but you have to sort of weed out the bad actors in your community that are intimidating people and harassing people or maybe actually doing harm to people. But it's consistently a problem because it just becomes like a popularity contest. And like you said, the people who are kind of well-known or considered to be experts and authorities can often get away with stuff because people are unwilling to sort of remove them. Even the garden variety weirdos, people are reluctant to remove them sometimes. Victims are not really uh, heard or taken seriously, and there's a lot of stigma about coming forward immediately. You get blamed if you're a victim who's who's speaking up. So um, it's it's a problem. I totally agree. And I like your approach to trying to remedy that. Well, yeah, although, of course, that it doesn't work uh 
100% of the time. It does change um, attitudes at some conferences, and it makes organizers think about things. Um, but It makes organizers think about things. I think that's kind of the key. I mean, because there's in a lot of ways, there's not a very good solution to this problem, and it is like a broader problem of like certain in in certain communities, especially those that are reluctant to go to the state for justice, they're, they're just these abusers and weirdos that kind of run rampant. Yeah, I think step one is accept that there is a problem. And the yeah. fact that you haven't heard about it doesn't mean there isn't a problem. It means you're not listening. Two, accept that <laughs> if, if someone is coming to you with an accusation like that, um, just, just as it is the case with accusations of rape, the 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 science and the statistics have shown that the the this the percentage of false accusations is vanishingly small because the pain and stigma and damage caused simply by admitting that something happened and speaking out loud is so yeah. high yeah. that that very very few people are willing to undergo that kind of uh pain so when someone comes and tells you i was harassed i was degraded i was demeaned i was uh excluded i was uh, you know made sexually inappropriate comments to me or something like that there's a very simple step there believe them um, yeah. believe them because it's very difficult to get to the point where they speak to it speak about it to someone else and okay maybe somewhere there might be a false accusation it is so insignificant that um, that your initial reaction should be to believe the victim, uh, and then you know open your eyes to the possibility that the aggressor may have done it again. And as soon as you do that, what's going to happen? You're going to hear from other people, and you're going to discover <laughs> that there's a pattern and practice of repeated behavior by this person that has been escalating sometimes over years. And everyone's going to be shocked and dismayed because they're such a paragon of the community, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a classic power relationship, right? Yeah, um, exactly. That's a, that's pretty much always how it plays out. And then they're going to say, oh, how can this person right. have been allowed to continue doing this for so long? Well, <laughs> there's your answer. Okay, well, why don't we wrap up now? Andreas, thank you so much for being on our show. This was really fun. Is there any place you would like to refer people to find out more about you? Or do you want to just promote Let's Talk Bitcoin if they want to hear more of us together on the same show? Yeah, um, either that, you can link to my Twitter account or my YouTube channel or something like that. Cool. Um, and yeah, we should do this again. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, this was awesome. All right, that's going to do it for us for this week. Make sure you check out our guest, Andreas Antonopoulos, on Twitter and on YouTube. And make sure you check out our website, which is sexandsciencehour.com. Subscribe to our podcast feed. And actually, the show's not over yet. There's still an after show. So if you want to stick around and join us for the after show, you are certainly more than welcome to do so. If not, we'll see you next time. Until then, sexandsciencehour.com. You've just heard Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week.
Welcome to the after show here on Sex and Science Hour. Ooh. When Andreas goes away, Brian and Stephanie will play. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's great having him on. Just a wonderful guy. Yeah, totally good. And um, we, you know, we decided we wouldn't subject him to all of our Amazon crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I don't think it's subjecting. I mean, I actually think it's the after show is entertaining and good. But, yes. But, you know, um, we we figured we would do that ourselves. Yeah. And uh, anyway, what is the after show? Well, we have a Amazon affiliate link at stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. And when people shop through it, we get the content for our after show made for us because then we get a list of what people bought. Yeah. Now, we can't see who bought it. There's no privacy issues with this as on our end. I mean, I'm sure Amazon is tracking Amazon you and has all of your data. All. <laughs> and is showing you like little ads for vibrators and all kinds of shit like that if you ever buy one. But yeah. <laughs> um, but we, we can't see any of that stuff. So we're not going to violate your privacy at all. We're just going to talk about what was bought and speculate about it and ask each other if we've ever read those books or used those products. And it's all around a good time. So and I, I have to say, I'm very pleased with how this is going. We always have interesting content for our after show. And um, I, I like the fact that we're getting a little bit of money for doing our show. Yeah, people enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So because, you know, well, I was going to say something obnoxious, but I won't. Like, our time is not free. Like, <laughs> it, it's not free, but I don't want to be a jerk and say that. I, we love doing this podcast for you. We love talking to our audience. But it is also very nice to get little Amazon gift cards in exchange for doing it and also have our after show prep done for us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? We don't have to make it hard for ourselves, right? You know? Make no, it easy. Well, yeah, I, absolutely. I and mean, this, that's this helps make it easy. The wonders of technology. Totally. All right. So so thank you very much to everybody who shopped through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. You can also send us, if you want to send us a Bitcoin tip or a PayPal tip, you can send it, uh, go to our website, sexandsciencehour.com. And all the information is right there on the sidebar. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. Okay. So, <laughs> so what did people get this week? Starting out with the books department, we have a very interesting book to me. Um, about something that I've always been interested in, but I've never gotten into and actually delved into it and started to learn. Teach Tell me your, more. Teach yourself Arduino programming in 24 hours. Oh, what? Yeah. Really? That's interesting to you? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I know you're into this story. I just didn't. Wow. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, so I've never really learned any kind of programming, but I'm interested in Arduino. Arduino is an open source uh, circuit board of sorts, right? Control board, yeah. Control board, right. Yeah. So what you can do with it is use it to control switches and devices and even robots and stuff like that. Yes. I first got interested in Arduino um, circuits when I learned about a couple of things. One was people were making their own PCR machines, which is a type of lab equipment that does it's used in yeah, genetic testing or yeah. amplifying the interest. pieces of DNA. Right. People were using these to make their own PCR machines. Now, a PCR machine is basically just kind of an oven with little muffin tins with a mixture of DNA and juices in there yeah. that it raises it up to a certain temperature. It raises it down to another temperature, and then it raises up to a different temperature, and it repeats those three steps a, a number of times that you specify. Right. And so you can easily program one of those machines with uh, something like Arduino. And people were doing it, and they were saving, they were making one of these machines in their own lab for like a tenth of the cost of what you would buy a commercialized one well, that's for. That's the beauty of open PCR. Yeah. And it's open source. So you yeah. could change the pro you can make it kind of do anything you want it to do. It'd probably do some things that you couldn't do with a with a commercially available one. So 
Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And then also, I heard of a guy who was trying to build an automated farm. Like he had a plot. This was really interesting. So he had a plot of land in Texas. And he had, I guess, maybe some greenhouses or some growing space. Greenhouses, I think. And he had an Arduino-based, like, some Arduino-based sensors and, like, things that would, like, spray and control the humidity and things like that and control the temperature. And then also, like, a server that was controlling all of them that he called the Red Queen. And he was trying to make, like, an automated farm that would sense, like, okay, if the humidity drops below this threshold, add humidity to the air. And if like he had he had a aquaculture integrated with it so that basically there's these systems where you have a fish tank, the fish poop out nitrogen that becomes fertilizer for the plants, which then make oxygen for the fish and clean out the water and things like that. So this is an attempt to really make it like an entirely circular automated system. Totally. And it's it's like permaculture, but with a technological twist to the permaculture. Right. So he was trying to do that. And then he was going to he what he was like a Christian guy. And he had this motivation, like, to give free food to all the people who needed food. Yeah, And okay. it was going to be such an efficient farming system that was going to feed everybody. I don't know how, where... I lost track of the project years ago. Yeah. I don't know where he... I don't know what happened with it, if he was successful, but he was starting to do it. And he had posted some blog posts about it. And I'm sure somebody's doing something similar. So I need to look into it. But that's how I got interested in Arduino. Yeah, you know, Arduino is actually there's there's kind of a I think it's great, you know, because of all the things that you can do. There is a line of thought though uh-huh. that, or I guess maybe a school of thought that doesn't like them. Okay, because why? Do, what's what, the critique? The I'm critique of that. of Arduino is that it like people aren't good at technology and at engineering and all of this mm-hmm. with Arduino. They're just good at Arduino. And so mm-hmm. you're actually limiting, you, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of more limited than you are unlimited. But at the same time, like, I mean, most people aren't going to spend all the time it takes to learn so many of these different, you know, engineering principles and electrical principles that. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I get that argument, but couldn't you say that that's almost like saying if you want to build a video game, then you also have to go to school for graphics and voice acting and video production and all this other stuff, right? Like yeah. you could build a video game without it. It may not be as good as if you knew about all that other stuff, right. but, or like WordPress, right? Like you could build a WordPress blog. It may not be anything fancy. It's going to be better if you know graphic design and if you know writing and if you know all kinds of other <laughs> skills Yeah, and those, those will synergize together, but it would be, you know, you could build a basic blog just with WordPress. Sure. Yeah. I'm not saying I agree with it. And I think it's more a line of thought or, you know, a line of thinking that that comes up, say, like in the makerspace and some of these other areas where, like, I think they feel it's almost a cheat, you know, hmm. that, that that you're kind of you're cutting so many corners uh, with Arduino. I, like I said, I don't agree with that necessarily, yeah. uh, but I get it. I That's understand what they're trying to say that, you know, they, they really want people to come up with genuinely inventive things instead of like, okay, how do we connect this to Arduino? Or yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, just putting that out there. I think this is great. You know, and I like your idea, you know, working with open PCR, the farming thing, all that. I think that's just damned wonderful. Please, mm-hmm. by all means, you know, do that. So uh, that's all I've got to say on that. Super cool. Well, um, the next couple of books I think you're going to love, Brian. Okay. So there are two coloring books. 
One is The Beauty of Horror, a gorgeous coloring book. (laughs) And I guess it's all like horror scenes that you can color in. And it's, you know, these adult coloring books are becoming very popular nowadays. So I'm looking through the pages of this book, and it's all black and white pictures that you, you would fill in and draw. Okay. And... One of them, here's the first graphic, Guliana's Lost Items, axes, cleavers, hearts, machetes, <laughs> rodent skulls, cupcakes, spiders with skulls on their backs. And then it has like little, like a skeleton with like fingers and arms, like framing it. Like that's the frame of the picture and like skulls. It's super cute. It's very cute if you're into that gothic kind of aesthetic, you know? Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> and then we had... Art of Coloring Star Wars, 100 Images to Inspire Creativity and Relaxation. Nice. Yeah, so this is a Star Wars-themed um, adult coloring book, and it has a picture of Yoda on the on the front cover that you can that you can color in. <laughs> and so I'm looking at some of the pictures we've oh, got. Queen Amidala. Queen Amidala. Yeah. What's that, Brian? Uh, is that some kind of ship? Can you see it? Oh, boy. It's, no, I think that's just a logo. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe it's. Oh yeah, some of these are some of these are just filler pictures, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so some of um, that it's like a mixture of logos. Like that was the imperial logo, and then the the old Sith logo. So right. Anyway. Well, there's a hundred pictures, so I mean, you know. Yeah, a lot to do. <laughs> somebody actually, I think this goes together. I'm not sure, but somebody actually got a nice pack of Prismacolor markers, which are like you know high end art markers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got a 24 pack of them with a carrying case. And so I wonder if they're going to be using those on the Star Wars coloring book and the other and the gore coloring book, the gorgeous. Yeah, book. right on. Super cool. Now, let me ask you this, Brian. If you had a Star Wars adult coloring book, would you color in it? <sighs> I don't know. Like I get I get the concept of coloring books and all. I was uh-huh. actually never good at anything like that. I can't draw a straight line. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm so terrible when it comes to I think my my muscles in my hands have atrophied as far as holding a pen or pencil. Like I <laughs> I only when I sign a credit card receipt, that's like the extent of how much I write with a thing in my hand. Yeah, I I mean I, like ironically, like I own Star Wars art books that show actual Star Wars art and I look at them often, uh but yeah, I don't think I'd actually color in it. And also I have that that terrible mindset. Not I'm not like a, a what they call an on-card collector. Um but yeah, the collector in me probably would be like, "No, oh, no, oh, leave it. Don't touch it. Don't yeah. color in it." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I bought a um adult coloring book and some colored pencils. Yeah. And I have not used it. <laughs> I have not made the time to sit down and color. That's how that's how much of a type A stodgy adult I am. I've lost touch with my childlike creativity. <laughs> um, we had the Situationist International Anthology by Ken Knab. Literary nonfiction, politics, critical theory, art. Ooh, critical theory. Oh, they must be a cultural art Marxist, right? (laughs) Oh, boy. In 1957, a few European avant-garde groups came together to form the Situational International. Picking up where the Dadaists and Surrealists had left off, the Situationalists challenged people's passive conditioning with carefully calculated scandals and the playful tactic of detournament. Seeking a more extreme social revolution than was dreamed of by most leftists, they developed an incisive critique of the global spectacle commodity system and of its, quote, communist pseudo-opposition, although they're not communist enough. And the new methods of agitation helped trigger the May 1968 revolt in France. 
Since then, although the SI itself was dissolved in 1972, situationist theories and tactics have continued to inspire radical currents all over the world. The Situationist International Anthology, generally recognized as the most comprehensive and accurately translated collection of situationist writings in English, presents a rich variety of articles, leaflets, graffiti, and international documents, ranging from early experiments in psychogeography to lucid analyses of the Watts riot, the Vietnam War, the Prague Spring, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and other crises and upheavals of the 60s. For this new edition, the translations have all been fine-tuned and over 100 pages of new material have been added. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, so the situationists, I mean, these are guys that, like, you would definitely call them cultural Marxists. Uh-huh. They really built off of Marx, uh, Karl Marx's thoughts. Uh, but under, but this is also, and in fact, Stephanie, you and I, we had recently been on School Sucks. Yeah, uh, the Brad School Fanon. Sucks podcast. And one of the points I made in the recent Empa, Empathathon or Empathon, whatever he wants <laughs> to pronounce it, he does that out of jest. Um, you know, I said, look, the term cultural Marxism is just, it's a throwaway fucking term. It doesn't hold any meaning anymore. And part of it, like the situationists are kind of proof of that. Uh, because the situationists think, you know, their, their line of thinking was that capitalism had vastly changed from what Karl Marx had said, because Karl Marx actually considered capitalism while he insulted it was more or less saying that, that market theory, you know, and, and, you know, market economics were a stepping stone. It's how you get, it's one of the ways that you, you know, like there are, you could pull out, and this is a funny thing. You could pull out, um, you know, if you go on Google or DuckDuckGo, I prefer, you know, and you start looking up, you know, Mark's market, you know, or all these different terms. And you sound, you could pull out quotes that sound very favorable. I mean, you'd think he was a capitalist. Wow. Okay. Interesting. But the reason he really, it was just because he saw it as one more way to get to that stateless communist dream. And it's important to understand that Marx absolutely believed in a stateless future. He was effectively an anarchist. Um, I, I, it's so bad. You know, Marx is, I mean, that's Karl Marx is such a complex person and subject to really break down into. You cannot, there is no way any singular podcast could do it justice. Mm. Uh, there's, I mean, it's just, it's a huge, I mean, there's so much to, I rarely hear anybody that actually has a Gets grasp. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't care if you read Das Kapital. I don't care, you know, if you read the communist manifesto, that's not enough. You don't know, you know? And so anyway, the, the situationists, I mean, they, they took on a far more extreme tact of like, Oh no, no, no. We're not going to let capitalism be a, a stepping stone. You know, we're, we're going to skip all this shit right fucking now. Huh. You know, I, I mean, they were, yeah, they were, Pretty advanced cats. I mean, and they reinterpreted. This is the other reason that I was saying, like, how how cultural Marxism, like, or, you know, calling somebody even a Marxist is such a throwaway term. Because, like, I mean, they, they pretty much reinterpreted Marx's theory of alienation. I mean, like, all these different things. Like, they they really don't agree with Marx, mm. you know, even though they get tagged in as effectively Marxists, uh, you know, via through, you know, the concept of critical theory, which is usually what people mean when they, when they toss around or usually right. what historically has been meant when the term cultural Marxist gets tossed around. But again, all these terms are just a fucking mess, but very, very interesting history <laughs> with the, uh, with SI. So do you think they had an impact on the culture? <sighs> Maybe like, in obviously academia. they didn't get to their ideal world, but do you think they pushed things in a direction or pushed it forward? Like do, were they related to this, the radicalism in quotes that people associate with the 1960s i don't know i mean there are you know largely artists but i 
I guess you could make that claim. Mm. I mean, we'll never, I don't, I don't know that we'll ever exactly know. I mean, you could say, well, this name, you know, was, was instrumental to this and instrumental to this, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, so what, like just because this art was all over the place really doesn't necessarily mean that people bought into it, uh, you know, or that, it, that it stuck. I mean, because trends change, does, how many people still listen to eighties metal besides me? I think a, dep- a lot of people. Uh, it's a depressing amount, or at least anybody that has any, any, well, I'm not going to go into that, but uh, it's a depressing amount of people. Okay. But that's because, you know, taste change, even in art and, and like, you know, what Motley Crue saying 30 years ago really isn't affecting anybody anymore. I wish it was, but it's not. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't necessarily buy, buy into this. People are fucking fickle. I don't care how much you think art, <laughs> art pushed yeah, this or that. Yeah, that's true. That's totally oh, true. Unless you keep, you know, it's, it's funny too. Even something that like you think lasts, okay? Like say Star Wars. In fact, you know, speaking of Brett and I, we talked about how, oh yeah, no, Star Wars will be around forever, blah, blah, blah. I was just reading an article the other day on io9 where it was talking about, you know, th- there was the special editions that came out in 1997 where they, you know, added in new effects to the movies. Now, a lot of Star Wars fans hate them, but then... This article was saying, yeah, look, we don't like them either, but without it, Star Wars wouldn't have kept on going. Like it reintroduced an entire generation to it. And that's the thing is you have to keep refreshing people. Unfortunately, and believe me, I wish it wasn't true because I want to relate with people with things that I've been watching since I was five and I can't. Okay. You know, because the average person doesn't remember their taste is not ingrained. It's not something that they, they've, they've allowed to, uh, that they've cultivated and allowed to flourish. So no, I don't, I just, I don't fucking buy it. You, you know, that, that, that somehow all these people. They change the behaviors of the entire planet. I mean, come on. Anyway, all right, so go, go ahead. <laughs> you know, so many people try to change the world and nearly everybody fails. Sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I've given up on trying to change the world because I just, I, I don't know. You I, can't and perhaps you can't, nor yeah. should you. <laughs> like in, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Well, I, guess, I, mean, I guess we can contribute in some small way, like by just living the values that we hold and trying to like trying to live as much as we can, like our ideal world. But mm-hmm. we're let's be honest, like one person or or a group even can only have so much influence. You I know? mean, you can make a difference. I agree with old Wilton Knight and that, you know, one 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 man, one person can make a difference. Uh, but how much effort? are you going to be expending and how much of a difference are you going to make? And well, that's the, I think you can change your world. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are, that are an easy trade off in that respect. Right. But I mean, to somehow think that you are going to change, you know, a planet that's been around for 4 billion years, uh, you know, you're a crackpot. Right. Um, Honey, you're it, not that important. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of you for, for thinking that you're going to affect that, you know, that much change. And look, I, I get the butterfly effect and all, but you don't have butterfly wings. Mm. You are not creating a storm. So, <laughs> sorry to be so depressing. Oh, that's okay. No, I think it's actually empowering once you let it sit. It, it could be depressing for a while, but once you let it sink in, you're like, okay, well, there's so, there's so much that I can control. My immediate sphere of influence is going to be the low hanging fruit in terms of little effort, but big reward in terms of making my life better. Damn right. And so focus on that. That That's the lesson, really. Love it. <laughs> okay. So in the books department, our next one was Judy, a book about Ju- Judy Garland by Gerald Frank. Based on over 200 interviews and full access to her personal papers, letters, contracts, and photos, as well as the complete cooperation of her that's creepy. The complete cooperation of her children, husbands, relatives, doctors, 
doctors, fellow, <laughs> fellow actors and directors. This biography explores with candor and empathy the tempestuous th- theatrical life of Judy Garland, 1922 to 1969. That's creepy. Can mm. you imagine after your death, somebody goes and looks at all, like talks to your doctors and looks at your personal papers? That's got to be some kind of a violation <laughs> of some kind. But it's okay if it's a celebrity, right? Yeah. Doesn't she get any privacy? Yeah, that that gets weird. That's like there's a book that came out last year in 2016 that um where it was like it was by Michael Jackson security guards talking about oh, Michael Jackson. Weird, I'm like, yeah. "No, you know what? You really should have just shut alone. up." Like yeah. th- that that's so tactless to do that, but anyway. I agree. I agree. Um The Book of Shadows Mage Player's Guide Ooh. from 1995. Yeah, baby, little mage action. All right. <laughs> What like is mage? Is that like a like D and D kind of game? Yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of in that vein. From White Wolf Publishing. Yeah, the good stuff. Little world of darkness. That's the good shit right there. That's right. Vampires, uh, the masquerade. <laughs> okay, next we've got uh, in the cell phones and accessories department, we've got Breaking Bad, Heisenberg, Resident Evil, and Darth Vader vape rings. So these are like rings that you put around your vape, I guess. Okay. It's a set of four of them, and it's Resident Evil, Darth Vader, Breaking Bad, <laughs> vape rings, I guess. All right, rock and roll. <laughs> cool. I didn't know you had rings. Um, I wonder if they're just decorative or if they help you hold on to it or something. Hmm. And then we also had a two-pack of Motorola Moto G glass screen protectors. So these are just, you stick them onto the glass and... Somebody buys one of these every week. All right. Like, I, I don't think it's the same person. Maybe they keep buying them because we keep talking about it because somebody buys one every week. Well, you never know. It's going to go illegal. You know, yeah. $7 and it protects your screen, especially if you have kids and they're throwing their phone down, you know, or your phone down and they don't get it that it could break. <laughs> oh, wait. Did you mean the vape things or the, the No, no, the, the screen, screen protectors. Oh, 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 yeah. Right. <laughs> I was off track. Oh, oh, so anyway, next we have the Nexus Wireless Silent Mouse SM8000B, $34.95 price point. Now this, I have reviewed a bunch of wireless mice. This is one I don't think I have tried. It looks... uh, That's interesting. Yeah, it looks interesting. It's got five buttons, uh, 2.4 gigahertz wireless mouse. Having a silent mouse is good because, you know, once you get, once you actually get a silent mouse, you start to realize how loud the clicking was from your previously non-silent mouse. Now, even a silent mouse is not completely silent. There's still like tiny little clicks, but like right now, I'm I'm clicking right now and you can probably barely hear it sure. or not hear it at all. <laughs> so that's a silent mouse. Yeah, I mean they they really won't let you into Ninja High School um, without <laughs> that's it. That's right. So, yeah. And and you know, like if you're a gamer and you're up late and your partner is sleeping maybe in the same room or something, now the lights might still bother them from your keyboard and whatever else, mm-hmm. but at least the noise of the clicking won't keep them awake. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> nice. <laughs> Health and Personal Care Department, we had a value bulk pack of Cliff Bars Cool Mint Chocolate. And it's 41 bucks for a pack of 12, I think. Okay. That's, I mean, yeah. Right that's on. Or maybe it's more than 12, but I don't know. It seems kind of expensive, but whatever. Who am I to judge? I mean, maybe they must be really good. I, you know, I shouldn't judge because I pay a lot for certain foods, mm. <laughs> certain food novelties that I buy. <laughs> <laughs> like this paleo Nola stuff. Oh my God. It's like paleo granola, like grain free and sugar free. Oh, it's so good. Apple pie. 
Um, <laughs> we got a Duracell Copper Top Alkaline uh, AA batteries. Always a good deal on Amazon. Twelve fifty five price point for uh, twenty four batteries. That's pretty good. And oh, here we go. This is the health and personal care department, so it wouldn't be complete without the Strap U vibrating strapless silicone strap-on dildo. Whoa. Wait, now wait a second. That looks like a twofer. Is that Well, that's what that's where we get into the strapless strap-on. So, thing about strap-on dildos is it's a dildo, but you can strap it onto your body so that it essentially functions like a penis. You don't have to hold it in your hand. You can use it from your hips and you can thrust into your partner with it. And the thing about strap-ons is that usually you need a harness to hold it onto your hips. Yep. So you're ending up wearing either a pair of like almost looks like boy shorts kind of like briefs that has the dildo poking out of it. Or you're wearing like a leather kind of belt that that kind of goes around your thighs and your hips and holds on the strap-on. And then you can use it that way. And there's not really any like if you're a, a if you're a female bodied person and you have like sort of the, you know, vagina and stuff and the clitoris, you're not really necessarily getting very much stimulation out of that. It's kind of just strapped onto you and you're using it on your partner, but there's not much rubbing against your parts. Sure. But if you have that same body type, you can use a strapless strap-on, which actually has a dildo that goes inside you at the same time so that when you're thrusting, that inner piece is kind of bumping up against your G-spot and then there's like a little nub that can rub against your clitoris. And it, if it vibrates, then you can feel even more sensation. Wow. So that is very convenient if you want to have, um, I guess, lesbian sex. My My <laughs> mind is racing (laughs) yeah i so confession time i've never tried strap on sex but i would really like to i'm sure i'll get the opportunity at some point but um it doesn't have to be with a dude i mean no it doesn't have to be with a dude yeah and that's why i was kind of like being careful when i said lesbian sex a lot of people associate uh strap on sex with lesbians right but not all lesbians have strap on sex some of them are like i don't want anything that resembles a penis involved you know (laughs) and also not everybody who uses a strap on is a lesbian or is having lesbian sex that enjoy it there's plenty of men yeah there's um there's pegging you know when it's basically heterosexual sex but the woman is penetrating the male yeah um, and so they're, you know, they're having to use a strap on. Um, and then there's also like, what about with trans people, right? If you have, um, for example, I don't know, a trans man who's fucking a cisgendered woman, but the trans man has not, uh, had, doesn't have a penis, they could use a, str- a strap on. Right. And there's even like strap, there's a strap on company that's called Spare Parts, which I love. Because <laughs> I, I just think that's cute. It and it clever. describes what it is in a really cute way. So now this isn't bad. Like usually when I see strap ons, they're expensive. Like you could spend $100 on a harness and $100 on a good dildo to fit into it and still not really be getting anything that stimulates the wearer very much. But this is a cool solution. It's a $55 price point. It vibrates and it has the internal part so that the wearer, if they have this female body, um, if they have a vagina and a clitoris, then they can uh, they can use it and everything. It looks like it would feel pretty good. More pleasure to you. <laughs> More pleasure to you. Indeed. Now, the, the only critique is like, you know, silicon, sometimes it can be like a little hard to clean. And then if you use it with silicon based lube, 
um, which can be a great thing because silicon-based lube feels very good. It's it's not water-based, but it's not oil-based, so it's compatible with condoms. Right. But it also doesn't gum up like the water-based lubes do. Um, that can break down silicon toys that are made of silicon. It can mm. kind of dissolve them. And, you know, it, sometimes it can have a little bit of a texture to it, a little bit of a rough kind of texture. Not super rough, but just, you know, a little bit of friction. It's sure. not completely smooth surface. So... Um, I don't know. I'm I'm totally curious about this. I hope whoever got it enjoys it very, very much. And uh, that was cool to see on there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in the home department, much less, less exciting. But I mean, still definitely exciting stuff here coming up. Um, we have the uh, we have somebody got a fireplace remote control. It's the Acumen RCKB 110 volt on off fireplace remote control. And this was $97. So I guess you turn on like a gas powered fireplace with it. Well, I mean, Hey, that could make for a fun time. Oh yeah. Roaring fire. Totally. Turn up the heat just by remote. Oh, I know. Let's go baby. I like a real fire, but I also like gas fires too. Those are cool. Um, and then we had a, a Dexon electric ignition valve kit, natural gas. So maybe someone's building a fireplace. Okay. Okay. It looks yeah. like someone is building a fireplace. Yeah, so we're staying sexy. All right. <laughs> and a Diversitech Corporation SOS1 safety overflow switch. Maybe that goes with the fireplace too. I don't know because I'm not an electrical expert. But we thank you very much for going through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Woo. <laughs> okay. In the Kindle department. Here, this is a little less electrical here. Paulianity, identifying Christianity's false apostle by Lee Farrell. Paul is in P-A-U-L? Mm-hmm. Paulianity. And it says his false apostle? Identifying Christianity's false apostle. Yeah, wow. I mean, this is, uh, that's a huge subject. I don't, I don't know the book. Um, I'm aware of a lot of the critiques of Paul. Uh, you want to hear the description and then yeah, let's yeah, I'm it. curious what are the critiques of Paul that you know of and how sure. they mesh with, with this book. But the cover has like, you know, the 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 evil Kermit meme where he's looking in the mirror <laughs> yes. and the, the guys, the other Kermit is wearing like kind of a hood that's uh-huh. like shadowing his face. That's what the cover of this book looks like. It's like a brown hooded figure that's obscuring the face and holding like a Bible in its hands, like a monk kind of thing. Oh, okay. I, I thought <laughs> if it actually had like like. Evil Kermit. That would be funny, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, because like <laughs> Paul's known for saying, you know, we see the world through like a, a mirror, or not a mirror, oh. but through like a like darkly through glass darkly. It's it's very oh anyway, yeah ahead. interesting. Keep going, yeah. Okay, so here's the description. Um, Paul of Tarsus is the greatest of all the apostles, or so he tells us. <laughs> Why then did the man known as Jesus warn his handpicked apostles against him before his death? Why did the early, quote, churches of Asia Minor all reject Paul and attempt to seize and kill him while he was in Jerusalem? And how did Paul lie his way out of his pending death? Who is this man that the Bible itself identifies as a, as a false apostle? And how did he wrestle away an entire religion to become what today is known to the world as Christianity? This book presents in plain English the greatest case against Paul's self-proclaimed apostleship that you may ever find. Do you dare to question what you have been told your entire life? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So, okay. Um, Now, it's interesting in the description alone that they use the word hand-picked apostles because Mm -hmm. that, you know, the the 12 apostles were, you know, effectively like the original disciples. Mm -hmm. Um, The disciples were chosen by Jesus. Now, Paul, like... To become an apostle, you, there's there's certain rules that you have to follow to become that. And 
supposedly Paul, who was supposedly originally Saul, that's one of the arguments though, is that he wasn't really Saul. Hmm. Um, you know, supposedly like, or his claim is, is that he had a vision of Jesus. Okay. And so he did, his claim is, no, I did see Jesus and I was chosen by Jesus, but it wasn't like supposedly while Jesus was really alive. Okay. So his claim of apostleship is totally based upon a vision that nobody else saw. You know, other than, you know, maybe, That's you know, sketchy. right. Maybe another member of the early church kind of like confirmed it and said, oh yeah, no, 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 no. Yep. He's I'm vouching for him. He's fine. Which did happen in the book of Acts, but in the book of Acts, uh, which is the book right after the gospels, which Paul had nothing to do with. Okay. Uh, in the book of Acts, I mean, there's a huge argument there, the council of Jerusalem where, you know, like, uh, Peter and Paul were arguing over all kinds of things. Do Christians need to be circumcised? Uh, you know, do they need to follow certain, you know, do they need to follow kashrut laws, say, you know, like, like the, you know, the, the food laws and all this different stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there is a huge, huge argument, uh, in, in Christianity. So, yeah, I, I mean, and, and there's like, one of the biggest critiques against Paul is that like, yeah, that, that he wasn't really Saul and that a lot of his, you know, history may have never even happened, but understand that, most of the books of the new Testament are written by Paul. I mean, I mean, he, like he wrote the bulk of it, uh, and his, it's interesting that his message is kind of unique in what he has to say, because his is the message that now Paul was considered kind of the, the apostle to the Greeks, which meant that he was sort of the apostle to the rest of the world. And he has this very kind of softer hand, um, over like, okay, yeah, no, you don't need to get circumcised. Look, if you accept Christ, you're a Jew, you know, all, all this different stuff where he's trying to be very inclusive of everybody as to where before, or as to where with Peter and maybe some other apostles, they weren't necessarily so inclusive, even though other apostles went all over the world. I mean, Andrew went to India, mm. or, you know, you, you had them going all over the place. So uh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I mean, and if you take Paul out of the New Testament, uh, you end up with a huge i mean just a it's very, very different, different right i mean like wildly different interpretation right of, aren't the other the four books kind of like consistent with each other but paul's is like way different or something or well again paul didn't do a gospel because okay. he didn't experience christ you know when christ was alive um as far as we know anyway and so you have the synoptic gospels which are the three gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John, or Matthew Mark and Luke which uh -huh. all kind of sound the same then you have the gospel oh, John, of John that's the one that's which different which is yeah. very See, different I know so little about the Yeah but I mean New like Testament. yeah <laughs> I mean so John doesn't like it, I mean I one I guess could make an argument if they want to get finely tuned that it does make changes but largely the gospels don't do much yeah, or I mean they they largely agree um, as to where you get into, you know, Paul's books, then suddenly, oh, this is a very different situation. Mm. Uh, and yeah. So I got to read you the, the author's bio, because I think you'll find this very oh, interesting, right. Brian. So the author, Lee Farrell, born and raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home, Lee Farrell. Wait, what? It says born and raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home. Okay. Lee J. Farrell attended private schools until the completion of junior high. During his high school years, he drifted away from his conservative upbringing and studied the doctrines of other more liberal Christian denominations at length. In his mid-twenties, Lee's father became a pastor for the Adventist church as Lee drifted further away from his family's doctrinal beliefs. Oh. Ultimately, Lee decided to leave the church he'd grown up in and study on his own. Lee's personal studies focused primarily on ancient Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern religious texts and a particular interest in how modern Christianity has been corrupted with, quote, 
pagan influences to the point to the point where the religion no longer resembles what the original founders once believed for seven years lee studied very deeply forms of messianic christianity and judaism observing the annual festivals of the bible as closely as possible at one point he facilitated group discussions online regarding the pagan origins of christianity eventually his studies branched out into what one might call esoteric and or occult writings of various learned masters oh boy (laughs) wow this guy went for a ride He went for a ride. Today, Lee would classify himself more as an agnostic with a deep passion for learning and continual growth. His greatest passion is sharing new discoveries with others and helping to explain complex concepts in easy-to-understand terms. He's currently writing a collection of books exposing the pagan origins of modern Christianity for the purpose of helping others think more critically about their beliefs and open their minds to further study. Well... Uh, wow, that history, I mean, other than he's not Janish. He um, sounds so much like you, right? Yeah, yeah. that's kind of crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, just real quick, like Seventh-day Adventism is a very unique kind of Christianity. Uh, and, and even, you know, like uh, like there's the, the classic book, um, Kingdom of the Cults mm-hmm. uh, by Walter Martin, I think. Yep. And in that, he goes over like what types of Christianity have become cults, have been perverted, quote unquote, perverted and become cults. And he himself is, you know, like a Baptist or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, there's an appendix where he says that, no, Seventh-day Adventists are not a cult. They are absolutely 100% genuine Christians, as Christian as anybody else can be. Uh, so, but here's the thing is that, Seventh-day Adventism is really big on conspiracy. Mm. I'm not talking like Alex Jones conspiracies. I'm just saying that in general. Oh, they, what other kind is there? Right. Well, <laughs> but they, they have this conspiracy that real Christianity has been has been perverted, like that that the Catholicism took over and that mm. Catholicism wasn't the original Christianity. I mean, they think there's there's real conspiracies within Christianity itself. And so it's not unironic. It's not surprising that a guy who comes out of an, an Adventist, an Adve- uh, obviously very heavy Adventist background, is claiming, oh, but guess what? Paul wasn't the real deal. Like, he's claiming all these conspiracies. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what he grew up in. He grew up in a very, like, uh, you know, kind of sheltered, conspiracy-ridden faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, and look, there's some super smart people. Some of them have been my friends in the past who are in the Adventist church. I'm not saying that. And the Adventist church itself actually isn't against Paul at all. They quote him perhaps more than anything else. Uh, but... It, it's not, not not shocking that that this is a direction a person of that background has taken. That's so, super interesting. There you have it. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you for your comparative religion analysis, yes. Brian. <laughs> okay, so we're going to wrap up here pretty soon, but we got a couple more items in the uh, musical instruments and accessories department. We had on stage foam ball type microphone windscreens. These are super handy to have. They're just, it's just like an, a windscreen for your microphone. Yeah. You need it anytime you have a microphone. And this fits over a lot of different microphones. So it's mm-hmm. very useful to have $3 free shipping. I mean, how can you go wrong? Number one bestseller in the microphone windscreens department. Now those are thin windscreens, I will say. They're very thin. Yeah. So they don't, they don't give you, like we're doing the show right now. We're using these thick windscreens that yeah, cost fifteen dollars. This costs three dollars and it's very thin. But you can double up, or sometimes microphones you don't need that much shielding, or a person's mic technique it doesn't need that much shielding sure. either. So there you have it. You just have to. Your mileage may vary. You have to test out what works for you. But these can be a very good solution. So on stage foam ball type mic windscreens, and uh, in the tools department. 
We had, you know, I won't read off the tools because I, it's kind of weird and boring, but I think we had some more stuff for the, for the fireplace. It looks like a, um, like a switch, a wire, another wireless remote, and a liquid propane conversion kit. Nice. <laughs> as well as a water filter. Get those flames up higher. Yeah. Fire and ice, baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great movie. So um, in the games department, we had Magic the Gathering Origins. Fat yes. Pack. I love Magic the Gathering. Such a great game. By Wizards of the Coast, the makers of that game. It's been very popular for 20 years, hasn't it? Just keeps on going, yeah. Maybe not very popular, but popular among a certain subculture of nerds, I would say. I'm amazed <laughs> there has yet to be a movie. I'm like, I, yeah, I, I'm that's sure a good point. I know it's been in development hell, but like, I am in, I'm in awe that it's never become a movie because it is such, it's still such a, such a force. Oh, God, you could have so many of those cards, those magic cards. Yeah, and they all are largely still, you know, they all work with each other. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, I think there's been some inflation over the years of the powerfulness of the creatures and stuff like the that. The Black Lotus. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, they, they have kind of a brilliant system where, like, you buy these big packs and, like, in, in each pack there's at least one rare card or something right. like that. And then sometimes there's a super rare and blah, blah, blah. So... <laughs> I don't know how many rares there are in this fat pack, but it's 30 bucks and you get, uh, oh, I don't know. Looks like a few hundred cards, I guess. Hmm. Very cool. And then finally, we have the Nintendo Pokemon Go Plus Bluetooth bracelet. Oh, all right. So what is this for, Brian? So this works with the game Pokemon Go, which, of course, uh-huh. was all the rage uh, a little while ago. I mean, people are still playing it. They still update it, which, you know, rock on. Do your thing. It, it looks like a little, it's shaped like one of those little location symbols, you know, like the, uh, the balloon, sh- the hot air balloon shape with the dot in the middle. Yeah. It looks like a Pokeball with like a little, mm. like, it, and it's supposed to look like the pointer on like, say Google maps. Right. Exactly. You know, where your destination is or something. The GPS symbol yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so what this does is it allows you to do certain actions within the app without taking your phone out. Okay. Like that's, that's the idea of this. Uh, and they delayed actually the release of these, um, hmm. maybe to their detriment, but, uh, but that's, that's the, the idea. Like, I think it lets you catch Pokemon or it alerts you when a Pokemon is nearby. So you're not always looking at your phone. Yeah. Um, so, so what it says is the Pokemon Go Plus is a small device that lets you enjoy Pokemon Go while you're on the move and not looking at your smartphone. It connects to your smartphone via Bluetooth low energy and notifies you about events in the game, such as the appearance of a Pokemon nearby using LED and vibration. Right. So I guess it starts to flash and vibrate when there's a Pokemon that walks by you <laughs> or you walk by the Pokemon. And it's like a little, yeah, like kind of like a little wristwatch thing. Yeah. And then they have, you know, the model has it clipped onto his pocket. Yeah. Um. That's cool. That looks kind of fun. And it's a $50, $51 price point, and it's got 490 customer reviews already. So clearly a lot of people have bought this. Oh, yeah. They also have cases for it, or the shields, they call them. <laughs> <laughs> so it can look extra cool. And they have, like, ones, cases that are shaped like, like I guess, the Pokemons and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> has a little character on it. So very cool. Enjoy. I hope you have fun playing Pokemon Go. Um I've never tried playing it. Have you, Brian? Yeah, I tried it. Oh, how did you like it? Not my bag. Yeah, not... you didn't continue playing it. Yeah. Okay, I, cool. I mean, rock and roll people, they want to do it. It's just not my thing. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for doing your shopping through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. That was a really interesting after show. I mean, I thought the stuff generated a lot of good 
discussion. Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. you're going to buy books on the Situationists and, you know. And the Apostle <laughs> and Paul. The Apostle yeah. Paul. <laughs> There's a wide variety of stuff. Yeah. So next time you have an interesting item to buy, or or just really any item, it doesn't have to be interesting, <laughs> go to stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Thank you so much. If you want to send us feedback or subscribe to our show, we may have a bunch of new listeners from this show with Andreas. Um, if you want to subscribe to our show, just go to sexandsciencehour.com. You'll find our podcast feed and our Twitter handle and everything else. Everything you need to know right there, sexandsciencehour.com. Have a good one, folks. We'll be back at you next week with another new show. Thanks for joining us tonight.